This podcast has not been sanctioned. The battleground was Monday nights. 80. For a campaign of 83 consecutive weeks. 3. There was a clear winner in this historic war. Weeks. This is the story of that campaign. 83 weeks. 20 years later, the time has come the whole truth. For the whole truth. This is 83 Weeks with Eric Bischoff and Conrad Thompson. Hey, it's Conrad Thompson, and you're listening to 83 Weeks with Eric Bischoff. And Eric, we are having some fun here, are we not? We're having fun. We're having a blast, and I want to thank everybody that's uh, downloaded us, dropped in, made comments on Twitter, and all of the above. It's it's really fun, Conrad. Thank you. Well, I'm excited to cover this, man, because this is one of the more controversial topics. It's all about Bret Hart and WCW. Uh, unfortunately, Eric was not there for all of Bret Hart's run. We're going to lift to, uh, tell that story another day, but we are going to start from the beginning. I'm ready to dig in. Are you ready, Eric? Oh, I'm stretched out. I got my mouthpiece in. I got my nut cup on. I'm ready to go. Let's fight this out. Let's do it. Bret Hart made his official WCW debut on nitro on December 15th, 1997, but it was quite the road to get him here. So let's start at the beginning. The July 1st, 96 observer reported that you Hall and Nash were all talking about who the third man could be. And everyone agreed that Bret Hart would probably be the best candidate and WCW floated the idea that it would be Hart on the hotline over the weekend and Hart eventually turns down every offer thrown his way. Now this is directly from the observer. And this of course happens when Bret was off of WWF TV. So set the record straight here. Was this ever seriously considered? Was it ever anything more than just a, what if from Scott and Kevin, it was not even that, I mean, there, there's an old saying, you know, the easiest person to work is a worker. Right. And in this case that was thrown out on the hotline, probably just to generate the 99 cents a minute or whatever that was. There was never, there was not a syllable of freaking conversation about Bret Hart being the third guy. Where that came from, why anybody would publish it is beyond me. Again, I think it's just a matter of people trying to create, you know, create news, create a reason for people to buy a subscription, you know, the, the, the dirt sheet version of clickbait, but absolutely no truth to that whatsoever. When did you start having serious interest in Brett? Was it late 96? Yeah, it was sometime in 96. Barry Bloom was representing Brett at the time. And, and there was a period of time I brought Barry Bloom into WCW and I was friends with Barry. Barry had represented me in some deals. Barry got me a hosting gig on E network, um, as a guest host one time. So I, I, you know, I was tight with Barry. Um, Barry introduced me to Roddy Piper at one point, a guy by the name of Mitch Ackerman. Um, Barry introduced me to a lot of people and Barry was representing, um, Brett. And I think Barry wanted to get, you know, Brett and I together to see if there was any, uh, chemistry there or any possibilities there. So that happened sometime in 96. I don't remember the date. So I'm sort of curious when we talk about the timeline here, uh, let's get fairly specific. Um, when we're talking about September of 96, this is when Brett first says he made his way out to LA and he was out there to do a guest spot on the Simpsons and Barry Bloom, who you just mentioned had lined it up for you guys to have a meeting in LA. Is that really the first time that Brett may be coming in 
even comes up or and, and, it, and it, it wasn't you know it's not even fair to characterize it as brett may be coming in it was really more than anything it was social it was like hey why don't you guys two why don't you two guys meet each other you know chemistry check this thing let's see if you even get along it was really social there was no agenda on my part there was no plan there was no i just wanted to meet the guy and see how well we got along i had heard a lot of things about him some of it good some of it not so good. And I wanted to sit across the table from him, have a beer and see for myself. Well, he says the meeting went wonderfully. You guys talked about your mutual love of Western gunfighters and you got along so well that he sort of forgot why you guys were even getting together. Do you remember hitting it off really well with Brett in your first meeting with him here in LA? Yeah, that's, that's accurate. Um, in fact, I've got in my home. Um, I've got a book, uh, a very large kind of tabletop um, book about the, the history of the American West and autographed by Brett uh, to me uh, that I got right after that meeting. And along with that, I've got a, uh, an antique model, Winchester model, 1894, 30-30, that is a 30 caliber a lever action that belonged to a sheriff from California back in the late 1800s in mint condition. And Brett sent both of those items to me shortly after that meeting. Wow. That's awesome. Uh, allegedly in this meeting, you say something like, so what's it going to take to bring you to WCW? And Brett says, I would want the same contract as Hulk Hogan plus one penny. And he would classify your response as flabbergasted. And he says, you said something like, I can't do a deal, anything like that. Not right now. And he sort of dismisses it and says, well, that's fine. I'm not really looking to go anywhere. And you persisted. Come on, at least give me something. I can go back to my people with anything. And Brett says he thought for a minute and he says, I think about coming to work for you guys for 3 million a year and a lighter schedule. And allegedly you say, Hey, let me take this home to the Turner folks in Atlanta. And, uh, then you guys just got right back to talking about gunfighters. Do you remember how all of that happened and him throwing out $3 million a year, which feels like a really tall ask in 1996. It's insane. It's insane. And I think what happens Conrad, I've I've said this before and I'm going to take my time and not blow through it. And I'm going to try real hard not to be too disrespectful to Brett because there's a lot of things about Brett. I do respect. I respect the fact that he made a great living in a career and made a lot of money in a business that is excruciatingly difficult to, to be successful in. Whether I like him or not, whether I think he's the greatest performer in the world or a mid-card jabroni, it doesn't matter. I still respect him for what he's accomplished. And the fact that, you know, it's a family legacy. And, and, and out of that respect, I'm going to be – I'm going to try my best, my very freaking best to be careful about what I say. Now, my experience, especially after listening to other podcasts and doing interviews over the last couple of years, and some sometimes it's, uh, you know – it's about people that I know and like, and I'm still friends with. But I think what happens to guys is they tell the same stories year after year, after year, after year in interviews or whatever. And they suddenly start embellishing those stories a little bit every time until they get to the point after five or 10 or more years, they actually believe the version of the story that they're now telling. 
And there is such a small grain of truth to that version of how that meeting went. There may, and I put, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to give Brett the benefit of the doubt out of that respect that I just described. There may have been a, hey, what would it take for you to come here? Offhanded kind of almost joking co- comment, maybe to feel him out. But there's no way he threw out a $3 million figure. And if had he, I would have, you know, happy to have paid for his beer and had a good joke and continued talking. But I can tell you it didn't happen. It absolutely didn't happen. In his mind, it probably did because he wants to believe that. But it did not happen. Well, all right. Um, let's clarify here. Brett says you called back two days later with an offer of $2.8 million for three years. You're saying that didn't happen either? No. I think what's happening, you know, and however Brett remembers this or possibly doesn't really remember it, you know, I think he's conflating two different scenarios. A meeting in 96 that was nothing more than a, hey, let's meet face-to-face and see how we get along. Right. And if that goes well, maybe down the road we'll have a conversation about a deal. I think what Brett has done in his own mind is conflate that with what we did talk about in 97. And all of a sudden now they're one in the same in his mind. They've completely merged and, and it's just so convoluted. It's mind boggling. Well, Brett goes in great detail in his book and he says that, you know, once he got this $2.8 million offer from you for less dates, uh, he takes it to Vince and Uh, Vince says, Hey, he can't come close to matching it, but he would love to meet with him and present his idea because quote WCW would never know what to do with a Bret Hart. And he asks for a few days to make a counter. And I've always just been fascinated by this because it just doesn't make any fucking sense. So I guess it makes a lot of sense now that you're sort of debunking it all. Uh, let's fast forward October 9th, Vince would fly to Brett's house. They meet in his dining room. And this is where Brett got permission from Vince to do the Paul J documentary. And that movie of course would become wrestling with shadows. And I know a lot of people wonder how or why Vince would allow the filming backstage. Well, there's your answer. Brett had leverage when he asked Vince, or at least Vince thought so because Eric's sort of denying it at this meeting, Vince says that he has a better deal than WCW instead of a three-year deal worth nearly 9 million bucks. He's going to offer him 10 and a half million over 20 years. The breakdown is one and a half million a year for the first three years as a wrestler. And then half a million for the next seven years as one of his senior advisors. And then a quarter million for the following 10 years, almost as like an ambassador for the company. And Brett wrote in his book, it was satisfying hearing him say, I'll never give you a reason to ever want to leave. And in the end, Brett just didn't think he could leave Vince, especially with his history with the company. So he accepts the deal and they shake on it. And nearly two weeks later, Brett is on raw in Fort Wayne for the first time in many, many months and announces he'll be returning to the company to take on Austin at survivor series. And he wrote in his book, I felt badly, but I had to keep Eric hanging until my deal with Vince was done. I regretted that I hadn't had a chance to call him and that Eric was about to find out that I just resigned with Vince along with the rest of the world. When I read this, I thought, man, that's pretty shitty of him to not communicate with you. But you're saying now he wasn't dot. You weren't dodging his calls or he wasn't dodging your calls. You never made an offer. 
There was no cause. And here's that whole excerpt that you just read to me, and I'm assuming, and you probably said it, um, came out of his book. That's right. right? Yeah. Okay. That just made him – okay, look at what that excerpt did in that book. It made him so freaking desirable, I was offering him more money than I was paying Hogan. That should be a flag to anybody with even a modicum, modicum of common sense right there. Number two, I didn't need him in 96. We were rolling in 96. We were rolling in 97. It wasn't like we were desperate. and There was no reason for me to offer him the kind of money he's fabricating in his book that I offered him. And, and not only has he made himself Elvis at that point, the highest paid commodity in sports entertainment slash professional wrestling by virtue of his memory of how this thing went down. He's also at the same time made himself a huge baby face by talking about how badly he felt for me. It's bullshit. It's just not true. This is fascinating to me. It never did I imagine that would just be a couple of minutes into this thing. And you would say, Nope. Never happened because well, that's- okay. Now, now put your, put your, put a different hat on. You're a businessman and you're a very successful businessman and you've been around this world now long enough to know how people work, how they think. Sure. Okay. Barry Bloom sets up a meeting with Eric Bischoff and Bret Hart, knowing that it's going to get back to Vince McMahon, knowing that Bret is trying to negotiate a deal with Vince McMahon. Knowing that we're head to head, knowing that WCW is kicking Vince McMahon's ass, how who benefits from that? Bret Hart and Barry Bloom. Sure, you tell me. You tell me what really happened. Yeah, Brett, you, you, Barry Bloom set the media. This is my. I don't have evidence. If I had to take, if I had to prosecute this trial in a court of law, I probably couldn't bring enough hard evidence. But I'll tell you what I think. I think Barry Bloom, being what I know Barry Bloom to be, and the pattern that he's clearly established throughout the years, I am sure Barry Bloom wanted to set that meeting up and either knowing it was going to leak or intentionally leak it so that he could help negotiate a better deal for Bret Hart and put more money in his pocket. That's what I think. And now Bret Hart, rather than admitting that he conned Vince McMahon and set this whole thing up as a work, rather than admitting that, which by the way, I would respect him even more for if he did, but rather than admitting that, he's conjuring up and conflating two separate meetings, not even two separate negotiations, because there was only really one negotiation, and that took place in 97, not in 96. It's just fucking fascinating, because he's not done. Brett wrote in his book, Eric was making every concession he could think of, including offering to have both Flair and Hogan call me to tell me themselves that they had no hard feelings about some less than complimentary things I'd said about them in past interviews and that I'd be welcomed aboard. Even Hall and Nash agreed to waive their favored nations clause, which had guaranteed that no one in a similar position could be paid more than they were making just so I could come to WCW and stop, stop. We got to hit full stop right there. There you go. That happened. There's the kernel of truth, you know, theory that I have. And and again, more conflation and con- convolution. He's conflating two different, two different periods of time. I did 
Here we go. I did. I'll fall on this grenade. I did have to go to Scott and Kevin, and I did have to get them to concede or to agree to waive a favored nations agreement because there was a version of a fit, not a complete favored nations. There was language in their agreements that addressed certain levels of talent and Brett would have fallen into that category. And I did have to go to both Scott and Kevin and get them to agree to waive that in order to bring Brett in. In 19 freaking 97, not in 96. There was no con- there was no concessions of the sort in 96. He's either taken too many shots to the head or he had a ghostwriter write that book, didn't, didn't have a clue what he was really talking about. It's one or the other. Fascinating. Meltzer even reported in the observer around this time. Um, this was quote, a bidding war, the likes, the, of course it was a, a bidding of course war. Meltzer reported it, a, a bidding war, the likes that have never been seen in this profession end quote, and that Brett had changed his mind twice during the same week before committing. Um, this is just amazing to me. Uh, they, yeah, so I wonder how Meltzer got that story. I wonder where all that detail about the bidding war going back and forth and Bischoff making concessions to agreements that didn't even exist at the time. I wonder where all that information came. How did it get to Meltzer, which would have gotten into, obviously, to the dirt sheets, which was obviously gotten it to Vince McMahon's hands? It feels like Imagine that. This, is, uh, this leak is the best there is, the best there was, and the best there ever would be. Ah. So, I mean, the pattern is so clear. I don't know how people don't see it, but whatever. So Meltzer reports that the WWF tried to get Brett to do an interview at In Your House Mind Games in September, but Brett didn't make it. And during all this time, he was negotiating with WCW, according to Dave Meltzer, of course. And Dave thinks the number is 2.2 million per year, which he writes, quote, would have been about triple what he made in his best year with the WWF as champion. And I was just sort of fascinated by this because he goes into even more detail saying that allegedly Tom Warner is going to help make this possible by offering 800,000 as a wrestler from WCW and two separate $1 million movie deals per year to get to the $2.8 million number. And you're saying this is 100% fucking made up. Yep. I don't know what to say. I've crafted my whole show around this and now i'm learning that it was all built on sand so no but well no and it's not there's some of it is true i mean at one point we did in 97 part of part of brett's deal was um and you know and i kept i'm pausing because i can't remember the amount i don't have contracts sitting in front of me I, clearly i had to turn all that stuff oh, in we'll get there but i love the company we'll, we'll come go, back go to ahead. 97 um you know i've, I've always wondered though you know because so much of my my story here is about you know him turning wcw down for much more money which just feels so ridiculous and it feels like vince is just a salesman salesman to allegedly get brett to take a deal for so much less money now it makes all the sense in the world the other deal never fucking existed. That just blows my mind. Um, Dave, wrote, not ninety six. It didn't. It did in ninety seven. Sure, but it did not in ninety six. Dave wrote, "quote While publicly WCW is claiming to not have gotten into a bidding war for Hart and that the figures being thrown around were ridiculous, Bischoff made a last ditch effort last Friday, 
supposedly equaling, if not slightly topping the McMahon offer. Now, Dave is suggesting in the newsletter here that with these extra benefits, whatever that means, Vince was offering nearly $4 million, which nobody believed then or now. And, uh, this, the extra little detail is really what makes it that you made a last ditch effort the Friday before. And supposedly the Sunday before he announces on raw, that's when you have hall and Nash wave the clause to get to that level of detail is really some pretty masterful bullshit from the Bret Hart camp. Is it not? It is masterful. And here's what's, I mean, we're talking about 96, right? Yes, sir. Hall and Nash did not come in to WCW in 96 with any language, any language that would even come close to a favored nations agreement. There's your evidence right there. Now, if Scott Hall or Kevin Nash or anybody else wants to show up and show me a contract that says otherwise, I will literally, I, 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 <laughs> I will admit that I fucked up. And that my memory shot, but it didn't happen. Hall and Nash did get language in their agreements later on, quite probably in 97, that did have that language in it. But it didn't. They had just got there for crying out loud. Looking for a great Mother's Day or Father's Day gift idea? I was, and I found it at Paint Your Life. With Paint Your Life, you'll get a hand-painted portrait created to fit almost any budget, and it's a great gift idea for your mother, your father, or both. You say Paint Your Life transforms your photos into a one-of-a-kind, beautiful, hand-painted portrait created by professional artists. You upload anything you can imagine. You can even combine photos. You'll pick the artist, the medium. You can even customize the frame. And you can receive your painting in as little as two weeks. You can give the most meaningful gift you've ever given at PaintYourLife.com. And there's no risk. If you don't love the final painting, your money's refunded, guaranteed. And right now is a limited time offer. Get 20% off your painting. That's right, 20% off and free shipping. To get this special offer, just text the word WEEKS to 87204. That's WEEKS to 87204. Text WEEKS to 87204. Paint your life. Celebrate the moments that matter most. Message and data rates may apply. See paintyourlife.com slash terms for details. What's up, everyone? It's Reality Steve, your number one source for all things Bachelor Nation and reality TV. Every day, I'm giving you the behind-the-scenes juice and your info on all your Bachelor Nation stories and also interviewing some of your favorite reality stars. My name has been synonymous with spoilers, but I'm so much more than that. Give me a listen. The Reality Steve Podcast, part of the Believe Network. Just search B-L-E-A-V on YouTube or wherever you listen. Hall was still on probation because of the the, 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 the the issues that he brought to the table, you know, going back to the discussion that we had on our very first episode. He didn't come in swinging a, you know, yeah. he, a big bat. He came in walking on thin ice. Do you, uh, do you believe, and this is from the observer, Hart's contract signed in September 92 was different from all other WWF contracts in that it gave him the option to leave at any time provided he gave a 90 day notice other WWF contracts, which are automatically renewable, give the wrestler the option to leave giving 90 days notice only during a certain window each year. The reason I mentioned this is because Brett believes after WrestleMania 12, he's free to sign with WCW at any time. Did you have an understanding with Brett that that was the status of his contract when you met with him in LA and didn't offer him a deal? I did not have any conversation. Not that I can recall. I mean, okay. I, we didn't get into his contracts again. 
check me here if I'm wrong, because I could be. But by this time, I was in a lawsuit. You were with uh, over the Alundra Blaze thing, over Holland Nash, the whole deal. All right. And the, the, the Alundra Blaze thing was a, you know, that was a, that was a pile on. But the, the Holland Nash, that federal trademark issue was a serious issue. There was no freaking way I would have had a conversation or offered money to a guy who was under contract, who had not already left the company. Even if I wanted to, I wouldn't have been able to. And Turner wouldn't have authorized me, especially that amount of money. It just, there's, it's just so... The, the, it's so obviously bullshit that it it boggles my mind that this stuff is still out there and people still talk about it. I mean, you and I have both been reading all this stuff on Twitter. You know, the, you know, there's a lot of people that know what Brett's all about, and I still respect him. But he's a he's a professional whiner, and he blames the world for everything he can think of. And there's a lot of people that are passionate about Brett and believe every word that comes out of his mouth. But here's the one simple fact. I was in the middle of a freaking lawsuit. I had handcuffs on me. I couldn't even, if I had a dream on a Monday night at three o'clock in the morning that I was going to go approach somebody who was technically under an agreement with WWE, I would have gotten thrown in Turner jail. It just didn't happen. Let me ask this. Um, Brett resigns, of course, he has a Matt classic with Steve Austin at WrestleMania 13. And Brett says you call him after the match to tell him you'd been quote blown away by the match and that quote, the door was always open at WCW. Do you remember having a conversation like that? Or is that too 100% fabricated? No, I don't think it's hundred percent fabricated. I think I probably would have called him again, going back to the first meeting. I had a great relationship with, well, I had a great meeting. I didn't have a great relationship. I had a great one, one time meeting and conversation with Brett and it was clear to me, at least at that point, I believed it was clear to me, that he and I, on a personal level, got along great. For two guys that had never crossed paths before, got along great. We had a lot of similar interests. Um, and I find it likely that if he had a great match, I would have called him and said, hey, if you ever want to come to WCW, the door's open. I find that likely. I don't remember doing it, but I'm not going to say I didn't. Let's fast forward to September 22nd, 1997. We're at Madison square garden. And this is the famous day where Vince takes the stoner from Steve Austin. But before that happens, Vince breaks the news with a different kind of stunner to Bret Hart that he cannot afford to honor his contract as it was originally structured. And Vince even goes so far as to call Brett the quote unquote, Cal Ripken of the WWF and promises to pay him everything on the back end of the contract. But right now cash is tight at the moment. And he says he has no problem. If Brett wants to go renegotiate with WCW and he sort of insinuates to Brett that Hogan may be finishing up there soon. So the timing might be right for a big deal. And Vince sort of positions this conversation with Brett that he's essentially going to downsize to just be a Northeast based promotion, which will mean he's going to have to let a lot of guys go. So he wants to allow Brett an opportunity to get a deal for more money while WCW and Eric Bischoff still believe that Brett has leverage. So there's a lot to cover here. Uh, first was Hogan's contract coming due at the end of 1997. And were you concerned that he might not be coming back? You know, I don't recall, you know, the cycles in Hulk's contract. I do recall there was a point, And I think we may have covered this on our first episode where uh, Nitro was in Denver and Hulk's contract was coming up. 
Vince did have a meeting with Hulk. I was well aware of it. I was hanging out with Terry having a, having a beer at the bar when, it, when Limo came to get him to take him over to Vince's hotel um, after the show. So I was, uh, I, I was very aware of it. And there was a period of time somewhere in there. It may have been 97. It may have been during that period when Vince thought that he was going to be able to convince Hulk to, to jump back to WWF. And maybe that did happen. I Clearly, I wasn't in the room. I've never talked about it with Vince McMahon. Um, and I, you know, I, I don't know what that conversation with, with, with them was about. Okay. Um, Brett is, uh, is supposed to be in L.A., to do an appearance on mad TV and somehow sets up another meeting with you. How and when do you remember this meeting sort of coming together where you guys are meeting once again in Los Angeles? Uh, you know, I don't remember. I'm sure it again, it probably came about as a result of Barry Bloom picking up the phone and giving me a call. Um, or Brett may have by that point, you know, we, we had each other's phone numbers, but if, if Barry was representing, um, Brett, at that time, more than likely, that came from Barry uh, because of our mutual relationship. And I was in Los Angeles on a pretty regular basis. And at that point, yeah, we would have started talking about a real deal. At that point, I had thunder on my horizon. At that point, um, you know, we were rolling. Things were growing. We needed more talent. So I do remember having, you know those discussions beginning in 97, but I can't tell you who called who or where the meeting was. So Brett suggests when you guys do talk, you're, you're pretty cautious in negotiating because of those lawsuits that you referenced a little while ago. And Brett says in the meeting, you make it very clear. You don't care if he's champion or not just to leave on good terms. Do you remember having a conversation about whether or not he should have the belt or not have the belt or is the champion or isn't the champion or any of that silliness? I do actually. And do you have the date that that was reported? Uh, I mean, this is directly out of his book. So, okay. So it's out of his book. So there's no date. It's not a Dave Meltzer story. It's out of his book. There there was probably two or three different conversations about that. Um, All of them really, you know, Brett kind of being concerned let about me, let me let me clarify Brett. here the, the Brett gets the news from Vince on September 22nd supposedly you make an offer um before October 24th so sometime either the last week of September or the first couple of weeks of October is when this meeting would have happened 1997 yeah yeah but we're talking about the conversations that we didn't we didn't have that me I mean I'm sure I said to him and the subject probably did come up I have I have to assume it did because he was the champion at the time. I didn't care about it. That that portion of what Brett wrote in his book is absolutely true. The one conversation that I distinctly remember, and I remember it because I was I was in Wyoming, as a matter of fact. I remember exactly where I was because my cell phone went off and I was in a cell area that was really sketchy. And I was right near a, a post office out in the middle of nowhere. So I literally went in there to use a payphone. And I remember standing there thinking, why am I having this conversation again? It's just not that important of a deal. And I convinced Brett one last time to not worry about the belt. If it, if, 
in my mind at that time, and I remember thinking this, and now knowing that we were going to do the show, I was kind of forcing myself to go back and remember as much detail as I could about some of these beats. And in my mind, what I thought Brett should do, quite honestly, given the fact that he was Bret Hart, given the fact that he was, you know, Stu Hart and the Hart family legacy, you know, the tradition of the business, what I wanted Brett to do was just pass the belt on, do the right thing, shake hands with Vince McMahon, leave on good terms. The business, the audience would have had more respect for him than, you know, holding on to that belt because he didn't want to lose in Montreal because he's a Canadian. I mean, that to me made no sense. And worrying about it made no sense to me because Bret Hart was coming to WCW. The fans were sophisticated enough to understand that if he lost a match, it wasn't going to diminish who Bret Hart was. That logic from talent never made any sense to me. That's when you get so sucked in to, to, to the work that you've worked yourself. And I tried to point that out to Bret. It just didn't matter to me. Well, let's talk about the, uh, the offer that comes in a few days later, you call back and offer 1.8 million a year for three years. And Brett allegedly says, if you can't get it back up to 2.8, forget it. You supposedly ask for a few more days and Brett can't get you on the phone for a while after that. And then on October 24th, Vince comes to him and says, "Never mind, I got the money. But Brett wants to keep his options open and says that, uh, you call back about a week later. And it actually goes down on Halloween of 1997. And this time you have an offer of two and a half million dollars for 125 days. Now uh, the alleged, and now we've sort of debunked first offer was 2.8 million for 180 days. So this is actually a much better deal. Um, what can you tell us about, I mean, I guess this is all make believe where he says, if you can't get it back up to the original 2.8, forget it. Did you originally offer 1.8? How did you wind up at two and a half? I don't know that I did. If we did end up at two and a half, I'm not sure how we ended up there, to be honest with you. 1.8 sounds about right based on the total revenues that we were doing, based on what we were paying some of our other top people, based on who Bret Hart was. And, and quite, you know, really honestly, based on how badly we needed somebody in that top three, top four kind of status to help us with Thunder. Had Thunder not come along, I would have never done a deal with Brett. Brett only came to WCW because I was tapped out talent-wise in, in terms of big-name talent. You know, we had a great undercard, but I had so many of our top talent tied up in NWO that we needed to rebuild the WCW Thunder version of the roster that we were trying to build, and I needed a top guy, and Brett was that guy to do it with. That's why he got the, the offer he got. Now, how we ended up, if it's for, I'm going to caveat this uh, again, I don't have, you know, payrolls from 20 years ago sitting in front of me or contracts, but if somebody can prove that he got two and a half million dollars, so be it. I've got it I, in front of me. He, he got 2.666 or, well, let me start that over $2,660,554 on payroll. You add that to 33 grand and change in licensing, less than a thousand bucks on merch. He wound up just a hair shy of 2.7 for 1998. He came out at 2.6, almost on the nose for 1999 and 1.4 in 2000. Of course, he didn't get to finish the year 2000 and was injured for a lot of it. So he does come in for two and a half. That makes total sense. 
Uh, it was allegedly a, a three-year deal. Uh, no, I'm sorry. A, um, it was supposed to be a five-year deal where, uh, you know, it starts at three and then he has a two-year extension. We're going to talk about here in a little bit, but every year is two and a half million. And, uh, supposedly it gets, uh, 180 maximum days and, um, 125 is the minimum. And for each additional date, 126 to 180, uh, it's an extra $6,500. Okay. If you've got it in front of you, where'd you get that? By the way, I'll send you a link right now. So here you go. Uh, we're talking money here. And I think this is a fun part of the show because nobody else really wants to talk money, but who better to talk about it with than the guy who helped negotiate it. So. Uh, the link I'm going to send you has a lot of the payroll listed, and this was all made public. I guess we should mention that a lot of this comes out during a racial discrimination lawsuit that you guys have probably heard about. So they had to make some of this stuff public. Um, and it was released in 2000. Um, anyway, let's keep going here. Let's talk about, <clears throat> so the next conversation that Brent has with Vince, he sort of tells Vince, I don't mind my WWF contract. Uh, we can keep the numbers the same, but I'm really concerned about my creative. What are the plans for me? He was not really happy with sort of Sean now being the lead heel, which had been his role. And he's not the lead baby face anymore either. So he sort of feels like he's sort of stuck and Vince says he'd think about it and get back with him. And uh, Brett says he only has until midnight to decide when he finally calls Vince back, Vince is getting a haircut and Vince tells Brett, don't worry about the deadline. In the meantime, you call and say, what else do you want? Ask for it now. And Brett says, I want to be late. Sometimes I'll never miss a show, but I am going to be late. Sometimes I don't want that to be a big deal. And I want quote unquote injury insurance. And you agree. So the deal in theory is done and you guys fax the contract over to Brett, but he still needs to talk to Vince and he does, but it's after midnight. And eventually Vince says, think with your head and not with your heart take the WCW offer. And Brett says, after they hung up, he goes to the fax machine. There's the WCW contract. He signs it and sends it back. And that's how this all came to be. Is that how you remember the final negotiations coming together? There's a last minute request for let me be late and give me injury insurance. No, again, I'm going to go back to my kernel of truth kind of premise. Um, it's possible that Brett may have at some point said, Hey, I'm coming all the way from Canada. Sometimes it's hard, you know, you know, there may be occasion where, you know, I'm not going to be able to get there four or five, six hours early. Is that okay? I may have said, sure, it happens. I get it. Um, would that have been written into a contract? I think that's kind of freaking ludicrous. Right. I'd love to see the contract. Maybe Brett still has that and would be happy to publish it. Um, to, to make me out, you know, a liar or full of shit, or, you know, maybe I've got dementia, who knows, but I don't recall that. Um, and by the way, there was no such thing as health insurance, you know, Lloyd's of London and the, and the gamesmanship that went on by wrestlers in the late eighties and early nineties, put an end to any kind of insurance and disability that wrestlers were able to get at one point. Lloyd's of London was non-existent for any reasonable amount of money. Nobody had it. And I wasn't going to offer Bret Hart something that nobody else had because that would have opened up Pandora's box. And by the way, 
I didn't negotiate those contracts, all of them. We had lawyers that did that. We had lawyers that negotiated with lawyers. Eric Bischoff didn't negotiate with lawyers. I would get involved with the talent. I would be an intermediary. But as this is the case in almost any entertainment business, lawyers negotiate with lawyers. Business affairs offices negotiate with business affairs offices. Eric Bischoff didn't negotiate language and terms in an agreement, especially something as ridiculous as, can I be late sometimes? (laughs) (laughs) Well, let's fast forward. Did you see the Montreal Screwjob live or how did you find out about it? I didn't see it live. I was uh, home at, living in Atlanta at the time. My wife and I were kids were watching television. My phone rang and it was Rick Rude. Rick and I had been friends. We'd known each other in Minnesota before I, before I got into wrestling. Um, we weren't, you know, we weren't close friends. We, we had mutual friends is how we knew each other really. And then I worked with Rick Rude in WCW before Rick went to, to WWF. Uh, so we, yeah, we were friends. By that time, for sure. And I got a phone call from Rick and he's, you know, he was just, he was beside himself, not angry. You know, Rick wasn't, he was, you know, Rick could be a very explosive guy, but it was that kind of quiet, subtle kind of pissed off where I knew he was really serious. I think he was shocked and he described to me the scene that he saw in the locker room and, you know, described to me, you know, how he saw Bret Hart get absolutely screwed and and conned inside of the ring and he was disgusted as most everybody was and rick said look you know i and i don't remember the details and i know this isn't about rick's deal but rick was free and clear um i don't think he had a contract i think he was working on a nightly if i remember correctly and i may not um but he said look i'm out of here can can i come back i said absolutely rick you can come back but he was he was disgusted well uh, Brett would write in his book that even he called you that night and he called you from the hotel room late that evening. And he says that you quote howled with laughter over the fact that I've broken my hand on Vince's jaw. And he also says that you thought the screw job actually helped him. It made him even hotter. Do you remember Brett calling that night or is this too all make believe? No, that's make believe. I didn't talk to Brett that night. I probably did laugh about the fact that he broke his hand on Vince's jaw that, that, even hearing that now kind of makes me chuckle. Um, <laughs> but hold on, I got to chuckle again. <laughs> but um, it didn't happen that night. Rick Rude was the only guy that I talked to that night. So the next night on Nitro, the NWO comes out waving Canadian flags, and you call Brad a quote knockout kind of guy. You were having a lot of fun poking the bear here, were you not? I was having a blast. There's a huge fallout in the WWF locker room over this screw job. Do you remember anyone from up there calling you about coming over besides Rick rude? What did any of the boys in WCW think about this? What can you tell us about this? You know, I don't remember much of the fallout within WCW. I mean, obviously people were talking about it. It was, you know, newsworthy, that kind of thing doesn't happen in the business. It's a big, big moment when, when you go to that much of an extreme. So there was talk about it, but I don't remember anybody being livid about it. I don't remember anybody, you know, other than just general conversation and kind of shaking of the head, like, wow, do you believe that? Holy crap. That's, you know, that doesn't happen every day. I don't remember much. Uh, no one to, to your first question, no one other than Rick rude. Um, 
search my memory bank here, but I, I don't recall ever talking to anybody other than Rick. Um, of course, let's talk about the rumor and innuendo. Brett says that he tried to get Owen over. Did you ever have a conversation with Owen? Never, never had one. I always, you know, I say the syllable of conversation, but I, I never, I don't think I ever met Owen face to face. I don't think I was ever in the same room with, with Owen. And I, I have never had a phone call with him. Brett even goes so far as to talk about what type of contract you were willing or weren't willing to offer Owen. That's all made believe, make believe to. I think there's a kernel of truth to that. I think Brett may. And again, <laughs> you know, I don't recall the conversation, right? But I find it plausible and actually probable that Brett would have asked me if Owen would be willing to come over, if I would be willing to hire him, and if if he were able to come over free and clear uh, without any legal exposure, what the range would be. I don't find that, you know, unlike some of the other things that I've heard, I don't find that completely uh, unplausible. Let's talk about Anvil and Bulldog. How did those deals come together? I mean, allegedly, Anvil is working for Vince on a per night deal, and you bring him in for 150 grand, according to Brett. And Bulldog has a hundred and fifty thousand dollar buyout. Did you guys pay for that? What do you remember about this? No, we didn't pay for it. We didn't. There was no buyout. Um, but 150 grand sounds about right. Okay. Uh, Brett says his first day at the WCW office happens on December 14th. And when he sees Hogan, he's sort of bragging. If you think you're a big star now, you're going to be an even bigger star when I'm done with you. Had you talked to Hogan about what the possible plans might be for him and Brett before he actually comes in? We did. We did have. Sure. I talked to, I talked to Hulk. I talked to Scott and Kevin. I talked, probably talked to Ric Flair. Um, you know, it would have been kind of standard operating procedure for me to have conversations and pick the brains of some of the top guys that he would be working with. One, to kind of make sure that there were no chemistry issues and landmines I had to be aware of. And if there were, I had to deal with them prior to him getting there, not afterwards, ideally. Um, and we, yeah, I would have probably, you know, listened to a number of people suggest best possible ways to take advantage of Brett, including Hulk. Hulk had a long history with, as did Ric Flair. Um, they had a long history with Brett. They knew Brett much better than I did. I had never worked with Brett. And quite frankly, I didn't really follow him much in WWF. It wasn't, he wasn't really my cup of tea. Um, so I wasn't, you know, I mean, I, I, I appreciated him. I understood why, you know, fans liked him and some fans loved him. I understood, you know, the, the qualities that he brought. But he wasn't one of the guys that I watched and went, oh, man, someday I can't wait to get that guy. He just wasn't that guy for me. Um, but I was interested in the perspectives of guys like Ric Flair, um, guys like Hulk Hogan, guys like Roddy Piper, who, who did know Brett at a much different level than I could possibly know him. Let's talk about his debut here. He starts with uh, a promo on Nitro with Mean Gene, and it's the very next day. Let me ask this, Eric. Why so, why wait so long to debut Brett? A lot of folks wonder why he wasn't on the show weeks prior to this. I realize that he probably couldn't appear right after Survivor Series, but my understanding is that he could appear as of December 1st, but you hold off a couple of weeks. Why wouldn't you put him in right away and try to figure out 
something to do with him at Starcade. So why wouldn't I just kind of dropped everything, taking a guy that had a non a certain period of time of non compete and a broken hand, and just kind of dropped everything and thrown him into the middle of something, without any real planning, without any backstory, just throw it in, throw it up against the wall and hope that it sticked. Is that the question? I know it's not, but that's that's the kind of prevailing critique that I hear so often. How could you take a guy like Bret Hart, which by the way, he wasn't drawing. There's a reason that Vince let him go. It wasn't because he was making Vince McMahon money hand over fist. You know, I'm so glad you said that because I feel like that is, don't get me wrong. Brett's arguably, I mean, not arguably, he, he was one of the hottest heels in the WWF, but at the time the WWF is the clear number two to WCW uh, Hogan is the hottest heel in the business, not Brett Hart. And business was down. I mean, that's the only reason you go to somebody and you say, Hey, I can't afford your contract. Not necessarily that we don't have the money, but we don't have it for you. And we don't have it for you. Not because we don't like you, but because I'm running a business and I don't feel like I'm getting a return based on what I have laid out for you. I mean, that's really it. And I appreciate that you can at least say that because I feel like that the narrative online is always, how could they do this to him? But the reality is. They weren't making money with him and they didn't think they could. They thought that there was a better way to spend that cash that they had earmarked for him. So they pivoted. But my question to you that you made fun of, and I appreciate that because now we can get serious. November 9th is when survivor series happens and he breaks his hand. I'm with you. I, I understand the very next night you're out on nitro teasing him with little Canadian flags, but we don't actually see him for more than a month later. We don't see him for five weeks later. It feels like, you know, if you could have had him out there three weeks later, you would have at least done something with him. I mean, you could say, well, we didn't have a plan and why would I rush him out there? You rushed out there with Canadian flags the next night. And I know it was topical, but it does feel like you just let it simmer a couple of weeks. I mean, but if that's stupid, tell me. No, it's not stupid. And by the way, I don't think letting it simmer is stupid either. You know, one of the things that I like to look what we did with Sting and Hogan. That was a that I wanted long term plans. One of the one of the reasons, Conrad, I I thrust myself or got myself involved in creative, and I I may have said this to you before. Um, if I didn't, I apologize. But I didn't. I was never comfortable with creative. To me, it was that one. I was comfortable with the business side of it because I understood it. I understood the business of the wrestling business pretty well. Uh, and what I didn't know, I could pretty easily understand and figure out. But the creative side was always that voodoo that you never really, or at least I never really got too close to. I never got close to the creative in, in AWA. I would, in fact, not only did I, was I never close to it, I wasn't allowed to be in a room if somebody was having a conversation about creative. That's how tightly held Vern Gagne believed in kayfabing you know, people that didn't need to be in the process. So I had no exposure to it in AWA. I had no real, I had zero exposure to it in WCW up until about 94, 93. And then, and even then, I, I was at a distance. You know, I would talk to Dusty Rhodes uh, because Dusty and I were tight. And we would talk, 
you know, a little bit. And he would open, and he would explain to me the ideas that he had and where he saw things going. And I sucked up as much as I could. I was fascinated by it, quite honestly. But I still was never comfortable being the guy in the room that, you know, said yay or nay on something. Rick Flair, when I brought Rick in as a booker, and he and Rick had the ability to create his own booking community. I was never in that room. I'd come in and out. I'd, there were certain things I would have to be aware of as a as the executive vice president, or depending on what the timeline was, um, of the company and being responsible financially for things. I had to have an idea of who was coming in, where we were going, what the pay-per-views look like, how the cards are being advertised six months in advance for pay-per-view, and all that kind of crap. But I didn't sit in a room with a team full of guys who had hundreds of years more experience than I did you know, cumulatively and, and try to influence their creative decisions. I kept myself out of that. It wasn't until later on that I inserted myself in that process. And I can't for the life of me, remember why I just gave you that answer. Well, I can't wait to beat it up either, because just two weeks ago, you told us that the NWO was your idea and you didn't tell anyone on the booking committee and you scripted Hogan's, um, you know, turn promo. That's true. That's true. I did at, at a certain point, I did insert myself into the creative because there were certain things that I wanted to accomplish. I wanted longer term storylines. Here's, here's, I wanted to create, I wanted to create anticipation. The whole idea, here's another little tidbit. And I may have talked about this in another interview years ago, but when we were in Orlando in 96, it would have been in July, I believe of 96. And I remember that because it was the same time that the olympics were taking place in atlanta and we were forced because all of the freelance production teams cameramen audio people you name it production trucks every living breathing freelance talents associated with television production and every major piece of equipment required to produce it was all booked in Atlanta. And I had to produce a live show. The only place I could do that realistically was because of the fiber optics that, that Disney had, I was able to produce shows at the Disney MGM studios. And while I was sitting in the Disney MGM studios, I was reading a paper a sports page and Dick Ebersole, there was an article with Dick Ebersaw, and Dick was explaining how he was going to reinvigorate the, the Olympics and how he was going to focus on story and bringing the characters to life and creating anticipation. And I read that article, and it was such a great article that I thought, how can I apply this to what we do? And it was about that time. That I really, yes, the NWO idea was my idea, but up until that point, I hadn't been forcing myself into creative. I was still kind of, I was involved, I was there, I had thoughts, but I was not driving that process until probably the spring of 96 when Scott and Kevin became available. And that was the point when I inserted myself. And once I did what I wanted, now we're talking about, now we're jumping back to 1997. And when Bret Hart, you know, came along and the question was, why didn't I use him right away? And the answer is because I, I believe then. And I, as I still believe today that creating anticipation is sometimes way more valuable than just throwing shit up against the wall. I like that this is your idea of creating because it feels like 
you know, the reason you inserted yourself in the NWO and the Hogan thing is that Hogan was a priority. Bret Hart never felt like a priority to me. Let's keep going here. Brett says, no, let me comment on that. Okay. Bret Hart was a priority. He was a priority. I brought him in for the amount of money I brought him in for because he was a priority, but he was a priority for a storyline that was going to build for a WCW versus NWO Thunder Nitro storyline. That was the priority, not trying to squeeze 45 extra thousand dollars out of them in a freaking pay-per-view by throwing them up against the wall. The priority was a longer term priority. It's not fair to make that statement. Let me ask this. Um, when you talk about the amount of money you signed him for, I mean, did you realistically think you could get a return of two and a half million dollars out of Bret Hart? I mean, that's a multiple of what he'd been making. You know, I didn't look at it in that respect because I didn't have the luxury of doing so we were, I hate to use the word force. We were given a mandate by Ted Turner early in 97 to launch. I think it was in 97, may have been late 96. I can't remember, but we had to launch thunder. We didn't want to Brad Siegel didn't want to do it. I didn't want to do it. Harvey Schiller didn't want to do it. By the way, Harvey Schiller was my boss and he didn't have the stones to go to Ted and say, no, you launched Nobody it in did. early 98. Just FYI. I'm sorry. You launched it in January 98. Just so okay. We launched thunder, but we knew it was coming. Right. In right. Right. That's the reason Bret Hart came in. I'm going to get my dates mixed up because we're bouncing around sure. a lot, but Brett came in only because of thunder only. So my priority was to build him or to keep him in reserves as best I can for that storyline for Thunder in, in Nitro. That was my priority. Is, and because I didn't – let me answer the question. I promise I'll get to it because I know I go around the block sometimes. The, the, the amount of money that Turner agreed to pay, by the way, it wasn't, it wasn't me that wanted to do it. But there was nobody else that was available that was in that Roddy Piper, Randy Savage – you know, Hulk Hogan, and not that I can compare him to Hulk Hogan, Ric Flair category. There was really, you know, Shawn Michaels wasn't available, nor was I really interested in, in him at the time for other reasons. You know, I, we all knew Undertaker wasn't coming over. There was really nobody else. You know, Brett was in the right place at the right time. And that investment in bringing Brett in was so that we had somebody for our top WCW guys like Ric Flair to work with six, eight months, 12 months down the road from the time that I brought him in. Not so that we could hurry up and make a bunch of money off of him on the first pay-per-view that he could possibly show up for. In hindsight, do you understand why a lot of people would say it feels like you signed Bret Hart to hurt the WWF more than to help WCW? Sure. If they don't understand the facts, if they weren't in my chair, if they don't take the entire situation into context, because we all know context is king. Is context is king your favorite right now, Eric? Well, it's not my favorite shirt, but it's something that I have to go to, you know, when, when talking about, you know, decisions that were made and situations that existed, you know, 15, 20 years ago, because to your point, you know, is it easy for me to understand how some people would immediately think that all I really cared about was hurting Vince and not really utilizing a, a Bret Hart? Absolutely, I can understand that. If you had no understanding at all of what the challenges were that I was faced with and the decisions I made in order to try to overcome those challenges. I didn't hire Brett simply because I wanted to hurt Vince McMahon. At the time I hired Brett, 
I liked Brett a lot. We had established a decent relationship. I felt like we had a lot in common. I would have never hired somebody like Brett just to hurt Vince McMahon. And by the way, my my desire to hurt the WWF wasn't nearly as powerful as people think it was. My desire was to be number one. That's all. If Vince McMahon got healthy in that process, great. If he got hurt and had to close the doors in that process, I don't care. That part is true. But I didn't lay in bed at night looking for ways to screw Vince McMahon. That part is bullshit. Is it fair that WCW was really a television company, more so than a traditional wrestling company, and therefore this $2.5 million ask that might not have made sense in the old school wrestling scheme of things maybe makes sense here when he's essentially going to be the lead character on a 52-week television show? Absolutely. Absolutely. And here's... And again, God, I try so hard not to talk too much, you know, I, but you, you ask me these things and I get excited about it because it brings back a lot of memories and it helps me remember exactly why and how we did some of the things that we did. People have to understand, and this is the difference between the WWF always was, um, certainly not anymore, but the WWF operated as a traditional wrestling company. That's why they had the incentive-based agreements. That's why the culture was what the culture was. And that's why Vince McMahon got to do whatever Vince McMahon wanted to do. It was a family-owned, privately held, traditional wrestling company. Ted Turner didn't look at wrestling that way. Ted Turner, and if you don't believe me, you don't have to believe me or people listening to this, just go read any book you can buy about Ted Turner in, in his history and how he built the Turner business model. Ted Turner believed in professional wrestling in the Atlanta Braves and silly-ass syndicated shows that he knew would bring the average American who lived in the South at that time to his network. And he invested in those because he looked at them as television properties. He looked at the eyeballs that they attracted to the network as an asset. So when he acquired NWA out of bankruptcy, late in 88 or 89, whenever it was, and renamed it WCW, it wasn't because he wanted to operate a wrestling company. It was because he wanted a, a, a television franchise that was professional wrestling. And it operated under the Turner Broadcasting model, not a traditional professional wrestling model. There were parallels. It did have a live event component. They did want to, to ex excel in pay-per-view or grow in pay-per-view. They did want to have licensing and merchandise. They didn't have any of those things, by the way. And even in pay-per-view, they were horribly un unsuccessful. But they, they tried to model the business in many respects like the WWF, but at the end of the day, if you go back and you look at, you know, SEC filings from Turner Broadcasting, whatever they were called back then, go back and look at some of the financial reports of Turner Broadcasting because it was a publicly held company. WCW was never – WCW fell under a category called other in the Turner filings. It never even had its own profit and loss published or its own line items published. It had its own budget. And it reported to a uh, to to uh, a general category called other. It was a miscellaneous. The only thing that was required. Now this is when I got to WCW. This isn't while I was running it. When I got to WCW, all they wanted to do is lose the least amount of money possible, but generate ratings to TBS. That was the goal, and that was a big difference between WWF and WCW from the get go. WCW was a television company, and all of the investments in that property were done so to draw eyeballs 
to the network. WWF operated differently. Brett wrote in his book, we're back to Brett Hart, boys and girls. I was bedazzled enough by that sold out nitro that the first time I felt like WCW might actually work out for me. I had a great first interview and got a good pop when I said, quote, nobody knows better than me what it's like to get screwed by a referee. Uh, Of course, that comment set up his opportunity to referee Hogan's world title match with Sting. Uh, as he said, there's no real consideration for him being at Starcade because he's got a broken hand. Um, but he wrote in his book, personally, I thought that appearing as a referee would be a lackluster debut, but what did I know? What did I care? I wanted to comply to do whatever they asked to the best of my ability, win, lose, or draw, then pick up my check and come home safe. Nobody would accuse me of taking this business too seriously ever again. Your thoughts. So he, so he, so he admits in the book that he basically threw in the towel to pick up a check. It's directly from his book. There you go. I rest my case, your honor. Uh, want to know why Bre- you, you want to know why Bret Hart didn't get over. You want to know why Bret Hart didn't become a star. Read Bret Hart's book. He threw in the freaking towel. Not my words, his. Now it's funny because Brett talks about in his book, he was so concerned with what creative there was with Vince, but yet here he's saying, I'll do whatever win, lose or draw. Did you ever discuss what the creative with him might be? I mean, did he know he was coming in to do the Starcade thing right away or were other ideas kicked around? No, he, well, he, he, he certainly would have known, um, prior to doing it, um, that storyline, that use of Brett made a lot more sense given what happened in Montreal, but I did discuss it with him. He never suggested any alternatives. He didn't have a better idea. He didn't come to the table with something that he thought might work even a little bit better. So, uh, <laughs> no. Yeah, did we discuss it? Yes. Did he, did he participate other than to say anything other than, sure, yeah, let's do that. Cool. I think Bret Hart just did a run in in the background at your house. So the that, se- was, that was my dog, Nikki, who's hungry as hell right now. The seventh match uh, on Starcade 1997, the last match before the main event, Sting and Hollywood Hogan, is a singles match for the control of WCW Monday Night Nitro. And we've got Larry Zabisco wrestling Eric Bischoff and Bret the Hitman Hart, arguably one of the hottest wrestlers in all the land is the referee for Larry Zabisco and Eric Bischoff. There's a Matt fricking classic. And Brett wrote of the event in true WCW fashion, talking about the main event here, the referee forgot what he was supposed to do for real and made a normal count, but that didn't stop me from knocking him out cold and declaring myself the new referee sting resumed the match and beat Hogan seconds later. If I thought things were going to get better for me from there on in, I was sadly mistaken. We're going to talk about that finish another time, but, uh, it's hard not to feel bad for Brett knowing the way the finish was botched. Um, the next night, Brett sort of takes credit for Hogan's loss and seemingly starts a program with him. But the following week, he's cutting a promo on Ric Flair instead. This is a tremendous promo that he does with Rick a couple of weeks in. I love it, but why the pivot to Flair here? It feels like you're starting with Hogan does the botch sort of cause you guys to pivot no the original plan again going back to the reason we brought brett in we we were planning for a wcw thunder 
Ric Flair was a top guy in the WCW camp. He would have gone to Thunder and been one of the top guys in WCW on Thunder. He would have needed somebody to work with. That would be Bret Hart. That was the reason I brought him in. I knew that Bret, or I believed at least, that Bret and Ric Flair could have some great matches. That was what I was building for, not Hogan and Bret. That may have, what, may have been what Bret wanted, but that's not, what I, that's not why I brought him in. Well, I mean, I think people just got that idea since Brett sort of screwed him out of the title and then did a promo on him the next night. But that's just me. Um, the end no, and it's, it's understandable. I don't, look, I, I can understand why they thought that. That wasn't the plan. The in-ring promos continue for a few weeks with Rick and Brett, and then we're finally on to their match that sold out on January 19th in Dayton. The guys go about 18 minutes before Brett gets the win by submission, of course, with the sharpshooter. It's a match that Dave Meltzer gave three and three-quarter stars do you remember being pleased with the match? I know a lot of people were looking forward to this one, especially the way uh, these guys had sort of set the pace, what, six years prior? I was looking forward to the match. I honestly, I'd, I'd have to look at it again. I, I don't remember loving it or hating it. I was probably ambivalent to a degree about it since I can't remember it specifically, but I do remember looking forward to it. You know, again, Brett, Brett also represented, you know, not only was he in my mind at least, critical to what I needed to accomplish with Thunder in order to keep NWO and WCW apart as much as I possibly could. But Brett also brought a style to the ring, in ring, um, that very few people had, That because he was a great technical wrestler. I'll, I'll not deny that. I'll, and I will bend over backwards giving Brett credit for his skill sets as a technical wrestler. And we didn't have a lot of guys that could do that. Certainly Hogan wasn't a technical wrestler. Bill Goldberg was limited. Randy Savage was Randy Savage. Lex Luger was Lex Luger. Even Sting, as great of a character as he was, I don't think anybody will rank Sting up there as one of the greatest technical wrestlers you know, on the roster. Great character, great performer, powerful, powerful brand, no doubt about it. But technical wrestler, not necessarily. Brett had that. He had that unique you know, style and ability and believability, much like a Chris Benoit or Eddie Guerrero did, but in a different kind of a category. Um, and I was really hoping, given, you know, given Rick's history, his track record for decades, that he and, and Brett could have some of those literally, you know, classic matches that people would be talking about for decades. Did this match deliver that? Probably not. Brett said of the match, I was worried about how Flair would work with me with my still injured hand. I needed to keep a close eye on him. Flair appeared to be trying to get along in the den of wolves and multiple wolf packs, but as hard as he tried, nobody liked him except his old cronies, such as Kevin Sullivan, Arn Anderson, JJ Dillon, and Mongo McMichael. Hogan took every opportunity to try to stir me up about Flair, but I said nothing. I let Rick do the match his way, even letting him chop me to his heart's content. As he tried to show me how good he really was, I offered no resistance in what was as usual with flair, 20 minutes of nonstop, non-psychology over the wow. years, over the years, wow. these guys have been pretty critical of each other. What do you make of Brett's comments here about Rick? I think he's an ass. Look, Rick flair and I, and Rick flair and other people have had issues in the past. And you can say what anybody can say anything they want about Ric Flair outside of the ring and issues they may or may not have had with him. But I've never met anybody 
that had anything but respect for Rick inside of the ring. Regardless of how they felt about each other outside of the ring, Ric Flair was not the guy that was going to try to take advantage of anybody. For Bret Hart in his book or otherwise to suggest that somehow Ric Flair, and this isn't me sticking up for Rick. Everybody knows our history. We're friends now, but that's now. But even back then, Rick, I got in the ring with Ric Flair knowing he hated my guts. For God's sake, I'm living freaking proof. There was never a doubt in my mind that no matter how much I knew that Ric Flair disliked me, that he was going to do anything other than to make me look as good as he could possibly make me look, given my lack of skills and ability. He wasn't going to take advantage of me. And for Bret Hart to even suggest that in his book or anywhere else, I find it offensive. And I think it reflects more badly, more poorly on Bret Hart than it should on Ric Flair, because that's not who Ric Flair's ever been. When Ric Flair got into the ring, whether he liked you or not, whether you had zero skills, as in my case, or whether you were Bret Hart, he was going to do everything in his power to make you look as good as he could make you look, thereby making himself look great. That was Ric Flair. That pisses me off. The next I, never, I clearly never read his book. I wouldn't be this hot. The next night on Nitro, Bret does a promo praising Rick and then challenges the winner of Hogan versus Sting for the world title. So it feels like we're trying to get back to Hogan Brett here. I feel like it's worth mentioning here that all the Texas shows for a house show loop were advanced sellouts and they happened with flair wrestling Kurt, or at least that's what was advertised. But when Kurt comes up hurt, Brett is chosen to be the substitute. But then according to Meltzer, you overrule that call saying quote, Hogan would never work Abilene and Midland. So Brett shouldn't either. So bulldog takes the spot. Is that your thinking at the time that Brett is on the Hogan with level, uh, on the level with Hogan and he shouldn't be in Abilene and Midland. No. Okay. Uh, let's talk about the February 16th nitro. Brett is doing a promo on Hulk Hogan. When all of a sudden Brian Adams appears and offers to have Brett's back. Brett's cautious about this and Brian grabs his arm and then Kurt jumps him from behind. And then of course it's revealed that Adams is wearing an NWO shirt. Hogan comes down to join the beatdown, and flair comes in to clean house and make the save. And I guess this is done to sort of firmly establish Brett as the baby face against the NWO here. It's really done to bring Rick and Brett together. Right. So that down the road, I could turn one of them and have a personal issue. That's why it was done. You know, I guess my question is why not embrace the heel persona from the WWF that was working so well up there? I mean, I know you're going to say it wasn't drawing money. It wasn't working. We just, we look, Bret Hart never drew in, in WWF. You could say he was the hottest heel and maybe from a perception point of view, he was, but I'd like somebody to tell me, you know, how that, how that equated to dollars and where that was in revenue. Because every time that Bret Hart had a run, what was it? We were going back to 1992, 1994, 1995. <laughs> Attendance drop, pay-per-views drop. <laughs> it all dropped. It, but yet you dumb motherfuckers giving two and a half million dollars. It's so hilarious to me that you're going to sit here and wag your finger and say, he never drew. I mean, I gave him a giant contract. I gave him a giant contract. He was still a very well-known character. He was a powerful, powerful brand. There was nobody else other than Brett available that would have moved the, the, the needle on the Richter scale. 
That's not the same thing as, you know, that is one situation. Yes, he earned it. He was in the right place at the right time. He, he's like a third string backup quarterback when the two best quarterbacks in the league get taken out and they get their knees blown out. He was the best candidate at that time and he got paid commensurate with it. But that doesn't necessarily equate to he was a huge draw and he was a huge heel. He wasn't. He was just the best available talent that we had access to at the time and he took advantage of it. Good for him. It's capitalism. On March 2nd, both Brett and Flair are fending off the NWO together and doing tremendous promos. And later that night, Brett beats Adams by DQ when Kurt interferes. That gets us to uncensored on March 15th, where Brett would beat Kurt in about 14 minutes when Brett used the sharpshooter, of course, for the submission. And after the match, Kurt and Rude destroy him. And Flair does not make the save this time. Meltzer would write, Nobody saved Hart as it was decreed that Hart and Flair can no longer be together in the same package for reasons that make no sense until you think about them. And then they make perfect sense. Two and a half stars. What changed? I don't know that anything did. It just feels like it would have been a natural opportunity for him to come in and make the save, but he didn't. Brett starts working house shows with Kurt after this. And on March 18th, you find yourself on TSN's off the record. And you said, you know exactly what you want to do with Bret Hart, but you're not sure of the timing. Of course, what you're talking about is Hogan Brett. And on that same show, you deny that he was ever going to show up with the WWF title and say pretty plainly, you have no interest in the USA versus Canada angle. I'm, I'm taking it based on our conversation so far that you felt that way because it wasn't beating you. So why would you want to borrow from an idea that couldn't beat you? Right. I, I've never really, Yes. Short answer, yes. Long-winded answer, I just never really got into this Canada versus USA thing. I just, it never, I've never seen an angle yet that really moved the needle significantly enough from a business point of view or creatively enough to capture my imagination. Doesn't, and look, if other people got off on it, they thought it was great. That's perfect. You know, not, just because I like something doesn't mean everybody else should, or just because I don't really like something doesn't mean everybody else shouldn't. I don't expect that. But I'm just telling you from my personal point of view, it's just a weak ass angle. On April 13th, that's the Nitro, the same night where the WWF would finally beat you guys in the ratings, Sting would defend the world title against Kevin Nash. Nash hits the power bomb and goes for the pin, but at the count of two, Bret Hart pulls the ref out of the ring. Hart gets the scorpion on Nash while the NWOB team shows up and bumps like crazy. And I'm curious when Nitro finally lost the ratings war and it comes down that this is the first show in 83 weeks that didn't win. What did you blame it on? I didn't. Okay. So that wasn't, that wasn't my deal to, you know, blame it on any one thing. You know, you can't, to this day, if I was writing and producing television, I, and I am writing and producing television, just not wrestling television, but you, you can't look at any one thing and either put it over as the reason it was successful or look at it and blame it for not being successful. It's usually a combination of a lot of things. Um, some of them big, some of them very, very small. So I, I'm, I'm absolutely confident. I didn't look back at any one thing and go, Oh, that's it. That's the, that is the reason why WWF beat us last night because we did that one thing. And if we wouldn't have done that one thing, everything would have been better. It's just juvenile. 
Stampede is April 19th, but Bret Hart's not here. He's just chilling, collecting two and a half million dollars. The next night on Nitro, the main event was Savage versus Hogan for the title. And there's a ton of interference with Nash beating down Hogan. But then Bret runs in and hits Nash with the belt before pulling Hogan on top of Savage for the pin. Piper runs in and Bret decks him. And Meltzer would write that Piper was apparently supposed to say, why, why Bret, why? Almost as like a cue for him to have a punch come from Brett, but he forgets the line as time is running out on TV. Of course, why Brett, why easy for me to say is a play on the screw job in hindsight. Doesn't this feel like some silly overbooked shit here? Yep. It really does. You know, and I, and I, and I haven't looked at that episode, but listening to you lay it out, I can visualize it almost beat for beat. And it is a clusterfuck. On the uh, April 27th Nitro, <laughs> this is legit, man. Brett can't explain why he's doing what he's doing other than to challenge Macho, say he'll handle Hogan face-to-face someday, and there's, quote, no rhyme or reason and nothing makes sense anymore. He wanted to make an impact last week because he's sick and tired of sitting on the bench. Uh, this is just, it feels like real life here. You know, we're five months into this deal here, six months in, and, uh, he's a baby face, but now he's a heel and he can't really explain what's going on. And nobody really knows. That was just a horse shit promo. Sounds like to me, Slamboree 98 goes down on May 17th. Pretty famous show. We just covered on what happened when Monday with Tony Schiavone over at whwmonday.com. Brett winds up losing this match by DQ to Randy Savage here with Piper as the ref. And Brett is clearly the heel here, even flipping off fans. And it's a silly finish where Piper's hit in the back of the head by Brett, but he thinks it's actually savage. So he DQs him and Hogan interferes here too, attacking Randy's legs, making it look like Brett and Hogan are together. Dave gives it two and a half stars. I I don't really understand what's going on here. It feels like a lot of stop and start. Let me ask this. How did Savage enjoy working with Brett? I think they got along pretty well. I think Randy, you know, I'm trying to recall. I don't remember having a ton of conversations with Randy about Brett, but I don't remember there being any real issues. Um, I think Randy, from what I recall, um, Randy had a lot of respect for Brett's technical abilities and skills in the ring. And I don't recall any personal issues between them. I'm saying they didn't exist. I'm just telling you, I don't recall them. Um, a week later, Brett says everything with Piper was a work and he can't believe Randy fell for it. CYA. <laughs> <laughs> uh, Sting and Brett have their first match ever on May 26, 1998. Let's get to the great American bash on June 14th. Hulk Hogan and Brent Hart would beat Roddy Piper and Randy Savage in just about 12 minutes. Uh, during the match, Hogan would wrap Savage's knee around the ring post and Hart puts him in the sharpshooter for the submission. It gets a dud rating. And Brett would write of the match at the great American bash. Macho and I cut a good pace, but Roddy and Hogan showed their age. Hogan was starting to remind me of giant Baba who was old, phony and uncoordinated, but whose fans loved him anyway. The whole storyline didn't make sense to me or to the fans, but to Eric and Hogan, it was all great work. My heel character had become a deranged, angry, bad guy. My fans didn't like him and neither did I. 
I don't know. It sounds pretty close to character to me. <laughs> On June 22nd, Brett would wrestle Chris Benoit for the first time ever, I believe. And Hart would beat Benoit in about 15 minutes of a very good match with a lot of silly interference. Here in 98, what was your opinion of Chris Benoit? Let's not talk about anything later. Here in 98, what'd you think? Amazing, amazing talent. And that was a match I couldn't wait to see happen. And again, that was not the reason. It wasn't even a top three reason. But one of the things that I look forward to with Brett coming into WCW was to be able to have the type of match that Chris and Brett did have. There's a segment of the audience, Conrad, I mean, there's a segment of the audience that loves the over-the-top, over flamboyant, unbelievable, just a silly circus shit, right? As long as the lights are bright enough and there's enough glitter and bright, shiny objects and hoopla, they can get excited about it. There's a portion of the audience that loves the believability and the reality and the drama of a great storyline. There's a segment that loves the over-the-top character. There are, there's all kinds of wrestling fans. They don't all like – they're not monolithic, all right? And I knew that then, and I know that now. And I knew then that there was a good segment of the audience that we couldn't really satisfy too many other ways, other than a cruiserweight division. But to be able to bring Bret Hart in with his skill sets, which I had a ton of respect for then and do now, and put him in a ring with a guy like Chris Benoit, who's was ascending really in his trajectory as an athlete and a performer in his reputation. I was really looking forward to that. And that was a great match. And I remember a lot of guys backstage just going, wow, that's from, from the technical perspective was, could you have put that in a main event? You know, theoretically you could, would it have drawn? Probably not. But for that fan who really appreciated that style of work, that was a classic. July 10th, WCW LA Melee in Englewood, California. Sees Kevin Nash and Lex Luger beat Bret Hart and the Giant by DQ. We've had lots of questions on Twitter about things like the LA Melee, these little specials that you ran. Uh, how did those come to be? Bret beat Booker to... T at the Bash of the Beast on July 12th <laughs> in a two and three quarter star match for the television title. Eric, what the fuck happened here? Brett now just a handful of months into the company, maybe six months is fallen now to working on pay-per-view for the television title. This has to feel like a demotion. Does it not? Fucking Kevin Sullivan. <laughs> the <laughs> next night on nitro Brett beat fit Finley. Uh, I'm curious since we, we sort of insinuated earlier that you know, he's a notch below or right at that Hogan level. How many times did Hogan wrestle for the TV title or wrestle fit Finley? Well, if you go back to zero, that would be zero <laughs> <laughs> on July 20th, Brett beats DDP to win the vacant United States title. And this is Brett's first title win in WCW. This feels like it's just to placate Brett. Was that fair to say? I don't know, Conrad. I'd have to go back and look at what the plans were, where we were in certain arcs, where we were in relation to actually launching uh, Thunder. Um, I, I'd really, to, to honestly answer that and not just throw an answer out there that somebody would go, oh, I guess that makes sense or that's bullshit. I'd really have to go back and look at that. I can't tell you off the top of my head whether it was just to, to make Brett happy or not. I kind of doubt it. That really wasn't a motivation of mine. Um, 
So my, my instinct is to say absolutely not, but I'd really have to go back and look. Okay. Let's keep rolling here. Brett starts working house shows at the end of July, teaming with Scott Hall against Nash and Lex. And Brett wrote, I lost the U S title to Lex Luger on August 10th, only to win it back from him three days later. Titles didn't mean anything anymore. They changed hands almost as many times as WCW senselessly turned me from heel to babyface. What are your conversations like with Brett at this time? I don't recall them. You know, Brett, look, Brett showed up from day one. Brett would show up to the building at the last minute. Um, he didn't engage other than to, you know, tell old war stories or hang out with a few people that he was, you know, comfortable with. He was a bit of a, a recluse, if you will, for the most part. He didn't really participate. Um, he just showed up, as he pointed out in his book, figured out what he was supposed to do for that day, went and found a place to hide, and went out and did what he was supposed to do. I never really had a lot of conversations with Brett after he got in. And if they did, they were insignificant. Nitro goes down on August 31st, and we see Sting and Lex Luger team up to beat Brett and Hulk Hogan by count out and let's get to fall brawl 1998, which is one of the worst shits to ever take place. It happened on September 13th <laughs> in Winston Salem. The main event is war games where one guy is going to get a title shot against Goldberg at Halloween havoc. Brett's in this cluster of a match, but DDP wins and the match gets negative four stars in the observer who booked this shit. Fucking Kevin Sullivan. Uh, this is, you know, we're going to rename this shitting on Sullivan with Eric Bischoff. No, I'm kidding. I'm kidding. I'm, I'm please. I hope everybody understands that. Oh yeah. I, I'm going to, I look, was Kevin involved in it? Absolutely. But it's my, it's my bad. That's not Kevin's bad. I let that shit happen. It may not have been my idea, but it doesn't really matter. Somebody sold it to me and I went, okay. Or I may even have gone, wow. Okay. Either way, that's on me. It's not on Kevin Sullivan. <sighs> September 27th, Brett and Sting beat Stevie Ray and Vincent. This is real. Say that again. You lost me. Brett and Sting beat Stevie Ray and Vincent. On TV or was it a house show? <laughs> it's on TV. Uh, Brett said I'd Should given, have been on a house show. <laughs> Brett said I'd given Eric and Hogan advanced dubs of Paul's documentary. Of course, he's talking about wrestling with shadows and he says they both called to tell me they loved it. I thought it perhaps it would encourage Eric to keep me baby face seeing as how wrestling fans would see me looking like a real hero in Paul's movie. What did you think of wrestling with shadows? I don't, I don't think I even looked at it. Oh, okay. That, that makes sense. If it did, it left absolutely zero freaking impression upon me. Cause yeah. I, I, I don't remember even, I didn't even remember hearing about it until you brought it up. So ladies and gentlemen, don't miss next Monday. I don't recall with Eric Bischoff on the shit. You don't get to do that, brother. I'm nailing you on this stuff. I'm answering this stuff. I'm remembering detail. You're asking me if I remember seeing a movie that I'm not even sure somebody handed me. The fuck is that on the (laughs) I like when you get fired up on the September 28th nitro. We finally see the dream match. Bret Hart versus Hulk Hogan, and it's on fucking Nitro. Brett would say, I was baffled when Eric wasted Hart versus Hogan on a free match on Nitro on September 28th, throwing away a guaranteed moneymaker that the fans had been waiting years for. The plan, in my view, was insane. 
He wanted me to turn babyface during an in-ring interview, challenge Hogan, then get injured and have Sting take my place. When Sting twisted Hogan into a Scorpion Deathlock, I would limp back out and double-cross Sting by DDTing him headfirst into the mat, turning heel again. To turn me heel at this point felt so stupid, it was almost like sabotage. Is this one you wish you had back? Mm, I'm leaning in that direction. <laughs> uh, Brett said of this angle, Eric had me turn heel by double crossing sting and revealing that all along I was a part of the NWO Vince's radical new direction was as brilliant in the ratings war as Eric's was weak. Your response. Yeah, I'm going to let him have that one. Yeah, that was weak. I mean, it isn't look, I'm not going to defend it, you know, again, without, you know, being able to sit back here. Well, I did this because of that. And here's where we were going. You know, the original plan to go two weeks later, you know, have that. So assuming that <laughs> given that I don't have anything and just listening to the way that was laid out. And I agree with Brett now, you know, in, in hindsight. And I, I probably felt this, that way then, too. Um, you know, constantly turning a character is never a great idea. It's just never smart. It wasn't smart. It isn't smart for Vince McMahon to do it. It wasn't smart for me to do it. It's not a great thing. If you can't commit to a character and you can't commit to a storyline, you can't expect the audience to commit to it either. So I'll give him that. On the October 5th Nitro, Brett and Sting sort of had a match, but it's really just brawling all over with weapons and whatnot. It's very well received and was a bit of a dream match. But again, it's on Nitro. Speaking of Nitro, a week later on October 12th, it's Sting and the Ultimate Warrior, or I guess he's just called Warrior here, and they beat Brett and Hulk by DQ. And this is uh, almost a dream scenario. I mean, these guys started their, their careers together back in like 86. This is the first time they've been together since. It feels like a pay-per-view, but it's Nitro. The following week, Brett beat Sting by DQ when Sting refused to break the hold, and that sets up Halloween Havoc. It's October 25th, 1998 in Las Vegas. Bret Hart would retain his U.S. title, pinning Sting in about 15 minutes. Meltzer would say it started slow and never really picked up. He was continuing as Sting recovered. He accidentally elbowed referee Billy Silverman, and then Hart leg dropped Silverman. Bad night for refs. It's amazing the similarities in the booking of today and the booking that put Jim Crockett out of business 10 years ago. Sting superplexed hard off the top and accidentally landed on Silverman's legs. Then he goes for the stinger splash, but overshot Hart and hit his head on the metal and was knocked out. Hart then hit Sting five times on the upper back with a baseball bat, a few of them hard enough to make a thump. It comes off the top rope with the baseball bat to the throat and revives Silverman and put Sting in the sharpshooter. With Sting out, Silverman called for the bell and awarded it to Hart. Sting wound up doing a stretcher job, and it was amazing how literally nobody in the crowd took the stretcher job seriously. Not even the lightest, polite applause as he was being wheeled out, and they eventually took him out in an ambulance. The stretcher and ambulance stuff has been done so much on both shows that nobody even reacts to it anymore. Star and a half. Eric, is this, at this point, a run of bad booking, bad luck? Is the magic touch here of WCW gone? What would you chalk this up to? All of the above. 
again, as we talked about in the very first episode, you know, by late in 1998, the wheels were really falling off on the corporate side of things behind the scenes. I mean, the talent saw it because they saw the frustration. We had to shift gears from the formulas that we had been using in 96 and 97. We have creative handcuffs put on us. We had people looking over our shoulders all the time that we never even we not only didn't know them and had never met them, it was something that we had never experienced before. Everything had changed. My focus had changed. I took my eye off the ball. Um, and by the way, I, I will say again, one more time, I have to. There's no denying it. I was ahead of the company. Nothing, nothing was allowed to happen ultimately that I either didn't directly approve or indirectly approve by that meaning authorize somebody else to approve it. But I, but to defend myself to a degree, and I mean a small degree, I never, even at the height of NWO, did I lay out finishes. Did I lay out story? Did I, did I approve or disapprove of who was going over and why? Absolutely. But in terms of that clusterfuck that you just laid out, I didn't sit in a room and work out that finish with that talent. That was a mess. And that was, again, because we weren't paying attention. The wheels were falling off. As I said two weeks ago, for me, in late July, early August of 1998, and this is a manifestation of it. One night after losing his world title match to Goldberg, DDP beat Brett to win the United States title on Nitro. Of course, Brett attacks DDP after the match. Goldberg makes the save. Brett would write on November 9th, a year after the Montreal screw job, I thought I finally had my chance to show Eric what I was worth. When I worked at Nassau Coliseum wrestling in New York for the first time since coming to WCW to my complete dismay, I had a meaningless match with Conan and did a run in during the last few seconds of the show, but I refrained from complaining. Eric had just given Davey more time off to get his act together though he had to let Jim go because he was clumsily missing shots, not showing up for work. So Bret Hart in New York on the one year anniversary of the screw job, Conan kind of hard to defend. Yep. Uh, it feels like somebody is either sabotaging Brett's booking here or nobody really has any idea what to do with him. Which one is it? I would say that. At that point, there was just no clear idea what to do with him. What it was wasn't it? working. He, By the way, I'll say this again. You know, If you worked in WWE right now, you would probably hear producers and Vince McMahon himself and Pat Patterson and other people say, your, your, your opportunity here is to get on TV and to get yourself over. You know, that's your responsibility as a talent. By the way, Bret Hart never came up with any ideas. Bret Hart never objected to anything. Bret Hart never drew a line in the sand and said, this is what we need to do. So all of that experience, all of that wisdom, all of that magic that made Bret Hart the most powerful character in the WWE and now WCW had him in the palm of our hands, that piece of talent never had one idea. Um, Say what you want about Scott Hall. And believe me, I had my battles with Scott. I get along with Scott great now. 20 years ago, there were times when I wished I could kick his ass. I couldn't, but I wished I could have. Same with Kevin Nash. Same with a lot of people. Look at the battles that Ric Flair and I had that are legendary, that everybody knows about, that there's been books written about, including his. Um, But at least those guys had passion. 
at least whether I liked their ideas or didn't like the ideas, they made sure I knew about them. Scott Hall came up with a Sting character. Screwed up as Scott Hall was most of the time, when it when he was clear, he had a passion not only for his own character but for other people's character. So the great Bret Hart, in all of his wisdom, came up with absolutely nada. So I'll take I'll take the hit. My fault. My bad. We didn't know how to use Bret Hart. Neither did Bret. What happened with Anvil? What was going on with Davey? I'm going to be careful how I say this. I got no, no issues with them. Um, they had problems. They had Scott Hall problems. A lot of people did, not just them. A lot of people did. They unfortunately had, especially Anvil, they had a, he had a real problem. Uh, Nitro, November 16th, Benoit beats Brett by DQ on Saturday night, November 17th. That's the Saturday night taping. DDP beat Brett at the same taping. Booker T beat Brett. Uh, two days later, Brett beat Conan. This takes us to uh, World War Three, November. He's making a comeback. Yeah, making a comeback. Come on, it's a hero's journey. World You've got to be down in order to work your way back up. That's what that was. It was a hero's journey. Well, it ended at uh, World War Three when DDP beat him for the US title, and then the next night he lost to Dean Malenko by DQ. So Kurt Hawkins, I mean, Brett Hart really developing <laughs> quite the streak here. Uh, Brett wrote, I worked the nitro match in grand Rapids, Michigan against pint size Dean Malenko, a second generation wrestler who was a good capable worker. Although his style reminded me of Cirque du Soleil. It was a little too rehearsed when Malenko went for a standing suplex on me. I went up for him effortlessly in the air straight as two dinner forks stuck together instead of me taking Taking me back for a simple back bump, he decided to walk me the short distance to the corner, but he didn't have the size or strength and dropped me full weight, crotching me and tearing my groin. I don't even know how I was able to bring myself to finish the match. I was in too much pain to even tell Dean how pissed off I was at him. And even worse, he dressed fast and left without acknowledging that he hurt me or that he was sorry. As well regarded as little Malenko was, I lost respect for him as a professional that day. I could barely walk, let alone wrestle. Yet Eric had me win back the U.S. title from Page and Chattanooga a week later with a lame finish where the Giant helped me. As ridiculous as the storyline was, at least the Giant did do all the work. This is uh, something I don't think anybody's ever claimed. Dean Malenko as either unsafe or unprofessional. I was, you know, you took the words right out of my mouth. You know, I, I that Dean Malenko was one of the most talented professional, respectful people that I've ever worked with. He may not have been quite at Chris Benoit's level, but he was damn freaking close. And more, more importantly, I just don't think I've ever met anybody who had more respect for people in the business, especially someone of Brett's stature I have a hard time believing that that was true. I've never heard anybody say anything like that about, about Dean. And I know Brett likes to blame everybody. Brett's, Brett's got more excuses and blame packed in whatever baggage he carries around underneath that dark cloud that he walks under perpetually than anybody I've ever met. 
And if he's not blaming Ric Flair, and if he's not blaming Hulk Hogan, if he's not burying Vince McMahon, if he's not burying Eric Bischoff, if he's not burying somebody and using somebody for some kind of excuse as to why he's not the, you know, superstar that he he sees when he looks in the mirror, I, I don't know why he does what he does. But that's what I attribute that diatribe to is just he needs to blame somebody because he can't look at himself and blame himself. Talk about somebody not taking responsibility. I think Bret Hart is the epitome of not taking responsibility. Rather than looking at a magnificent freaking career where he made a fortune, not only from me and Turner Broadcasting, but from WWE, he's probably still getting checks from WWE. Rather than looking at what he's accomplished in his life and thinking about all of the great things, he lives in this constant state of fucking perpetual misery. I don't get it. That's another one that gets me hot. Well, I mean, I've never, I've been in the business for 30 years. I've never heard anybody bury Dean Malenko like that. Yeah. Ever. Let's get to Starcade 98. Brett doesn't have a match, but he does show up to hit the giant with a chair during his match with DDP. So no Starcade matches for Brett in 97 or 98. And I bet a dollar he wishes he didn't have one in 99. Uh, he doesn't wrestle in December of 98, but he does come back towards the end of January 99. He starts working house shows against Sting until late January uh, with both of them trading wins back and forth. But while he's off, uh, he does manage to do a spot with Will Sasso for Mad TV. Pretty memorable stuff here. Does Brett find these opportunities on his own or does WCW help him land some of these gigs? No, I think Brett either found them on his own through his own contacts or possibly Barry Bloom. All right, Eric, um, Brett wrote in his book, I promised Eric I'd delay my groin surgery until after WCW's Canadian debut, which was going to be in Toronto on March 29th, 1999. I thought I could make it because I could walk, run reasonably fast and take some bumps, but I'd have to go real easy. Eric also apologized for how they dropped the ball with me from the start. Do you remember this conversation about, you know, wanting to make this Canadian debut and you sort of being remiss about the way things have happened so far? Nope. Never happened. Okay. Uh, he says on February 1st, he pitches the steel plate under the hockey Jersey bit to Goldberg and bill loved it. So he pitches it to you and you loved it too, but weren't really sure that bill would go for it. When he explains that bill already approved it, you loved it and everyone agreed to it. And you said, we'll do it for the Canadian debut, but keep it quiet. Is that the way you remember it? It's probably the most memorable thing of Bret Hart's WCW run. I remember, I remember the, I remember the steel plate under the hockey Jersey. I don't remember, you know, there being a ton of drama going back and forth or like doing cartwheels over the idea, but I do remember it. I do remember there being some discussion Um, and it makes sense to me that Brett and Bill would have talked about it, worked it out and come to me and said, okay, we got it figured out. As long as they were both were happy with it. And whoever was the agent for that match, um, thought it was the right thing. I would have gone along with it. I mean, it is a pretty phenomenal idea and, and Brett's taking credit here for it, but he does write that he comes to Atlanta for a booking meeting on February 7th to find Hogan Nash and yourself quote, playing God with the careers of the wrestlers. Hogan wanted to play up that Brett was going back to the WWF, but Brett didn't like that idea. 
And allegedly he works it out so he can work with Hogan in the fall. And both you and Hogan agree and then leave the room. Nash then comes in and says, Hogan is working with Goldberg in the fall. Do you remember having a, a meeting with Brett, inviting him to Atlanta and y'all talking about, and I guess we should remind you here, this is February of 1999, that there were plans to get to Hogan and Brett in the fall, maybe Halloween havoc time. Here's a problem I have with that story. Was that in his book? Yeah. Yeah. I, 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 I have serious doubts whether Brett either wrote that book or paid too close attention to it. Hulk Hogan never came to Atlanta for anything unless we were taping a nitro. Uh, and I think one time he came for a little uh, meet and greet with Ted Turner and some of the executives at Turner Broadcasting. Hogan never came to Atlanta for a booking meeting. That's my, that's my first – that pegs my bullshit meter right off the bat. And from that point on, because that is such a th – that is so incomprehensible to me – the rest of it doesn't make any sense. There may be a kernel of some truth to it, but I can assure you Hulk Hogan. First of all, Hulk Hogan didn't come to booking meetings that there's another one that never happened. Hulk would have a lot to say when we got to TV or I was me, talking brother. to Hulk, but Hulk did not come to booking meetings. I don't think Hulk was in the WCW offices more than once the entire time that we worked together. Brett, um, Brett is what know. happens when you have a ghostwriter, write your book and you don't, you don't fact check them. They just write whatever the fuck they want to write because it fits the narrative that they want the, the, the readers of your book to believe. And there's holes wide enough to drive a tank through. Meltzer wrote DDP wanted Brett to put over Booker since Booker had lost three times to him on TV. But Brett thought that would hurt his future program with Hogan. Nash felt like Brett was overpaid and not over. So he didn't want the Brett Hogan match to even happen. So allegedly he got in your ear that Brett wasn't willing to cooperate and put guys over. Brett says he had no problem putting guys over, but doing so this often made it hard to justify why you were paying him so much. That leads us to the February 8th, the very next day when you guys ran a nitro. There, Roddy Piper would beat Brett to win the United States title and Meltzer shit all over it. The commentary, the knucks, the Will Sasso tug of war, and what he calls the worst schoolboy in history. Is it fair to say, at least at this point, just over a year, that everything Bret Hart had touched in WCW has turned to shit? Yeah, it is. Now, Brett would say this was supposed to be Brett versus Scott Hall, not Brett versus Piper, but Scott flaked. So they changed it to Piper and decided to have him drop the belt. Now, what really happened with Scott and why the switch happened led to Meltzer sort of freestyling that this is a way to get the belt off of Brett without the politics of having Hall be the one who beat him. And he freestyles that Piper is going to immediately drop it to Scott Hall because Piper's hip is so bad. He can barely work. Do you recall there being some issues with Nash Hall and Brett about maybe Brett, not wanting to do jobs, Nash, not seeing any money in Brett and them just trying to figure a way to get the belt off of him here. Nash Nash's role at that point was not 
one that involved analytics in terms of money or non-money. Right. It was simply about decent story and a great match. Um, so I call bullshit on that. Number one. Uh, number two, I don't remember Brett ever balking about doing a job for anybody. In fact, I don't remember Brett saying much about anything. And I'm not, and I don't mean that as derisively as it sounds, but Brett, as Brett pointed out in his book, I think he just showed up. He did what he was asked to do. I don't recall Brett ever bitching to me or to anybody else. I don't, I don't recall anybody coming to me and saying, Hey, I heard Brett Hart say this, you know, in catering, he's really being a jackass about this. He doesn't want to do a job for Scott Hall or vice versa. I don't remember that. I, I could conceivably Scott Hall flaked. I could see how he probably at that time, especially Scott Hall was in serious jeopardy with his chemical issues and in and out of treatment and, and no showing and had a tremendous amount of family issues. So do I believe there was an incident or a plan where, you know, Scott Hall was supposed to be involved and wasn't? Absolutely. I can buy that. But do I think that there was some kind of Dave Meltzer freestyle and, you know, Machiavellian drama behind it? No, I don't. One week after the whole situation where he drops the belt to Piper, Brett wrestles Will Sasso. That's right. From mad TV. Meltzer would freestyle that mad TV felt like WCW hadn't held up their end of the deal from the prior week. And this match was essentially a make good. Did you have some sort of a, uh, deal or understanding with mad TV here that you recall zero. That's a Bret Hart deal. A few days later on thunder, Brett beat disco inferno and Brett is hot about having to work disco inferno for a 17 minute match. He feels like Nash knew about the groin injury and did this just to be an asshole. A few days later on nitro on February 22nd, Booker beat Brett and Brett wrote in his book, Eric decided to go on family vacation to France, leaving Nash in charge. Eric's last nitro before his time off was February 22nd in Sacramento. Instead of building me up for Goldberg, which is going to go down on March 29th, where they have that little angle with the steel plate. He had me lose to Booker T. This made no sense to me at all, but Eric sheepishly told me that his booking committee insisted that it was time to see me do a job. I told him I'd done plenty of them and beating me was just beyond stupid when they had so much invested in me quote, just put Booker over and we'll build everything after this. He said, I had nothing but respect for Booker T. So I told Eric, I'd do whatever he needed me to do. And I was pleased to see that despite my groin injury, Meltzer rated a four-star match. Yay, Brad, you are a superhero. You are a Canadian legend. Dave Meltzer said so. How fucking, how fucking political had all of this become where he doesn't want to do a job to Booker T and, and you allegedly say the booking committee says it's time for you to lose. First of all, I don't, I don't remember saying that. I don't believe I did. That, that would not have ever been a response of mine under any circumstances. I wouldn't have faded it to a booking committee. Um, number one, number two, I had by that time, there was a tremendous amount of, sh there was a shit storm of nuclear proportions taking place within Turner corporate at that time that had me completely overwhelmed. And I did take Kevin in and I may not have second guessed him. That's not my style either. Um, if I tag somebody in, especially at that point in the, in the situation that I was in, in the frame of mind I was in or wasn't in, 
um, I wouldn't have second-guessed Kevin or anybody else, for that matter, that I put in that position at that time. Uh, this is going to be fun here. On March 1st, Benoit beats Brett by DQ. On March 8th, Brett beat Van Hammer. Brett said, quote, next at Nitro in Worcester on March 8th, it was Malenko I would supposedly lose to. When I protested to Nash that I needed to stay strong for Goldberg, of course, he said he had no idea what I was talking about. To me, it felt like Rome was burning yet again. Nash was doing all he could to kill me off for reasons I'll never know. That time, I somehow managed to persuade him that Eric had something big planned for me, so acting like he was doing me a huge favor, he threw me in the ring with a big clumsy rookie named Heavy Metal Van Hammer. I didn't lose, but it added nothing to my heat going into Toronto. The idea that you had Malenko booked to beat him and then he wrestled Van Hammer, this feels like the biggest fucking waste of two and a half million dollars ever. Well, it's, it's interesting how you go all over the globe and, and in one moment we're recognizing that Kevin Nash is booking. Brett himself acknowledges that Kevin Nash is making those decisions, yet you're coming back to me and, and, and accusing me of doing a piss poor job of booking Brett. Which is it? Well, it is. I thought you put Kevin Nash in that spot. I thought you were in charge. I thought when things go well, the president gets the blame. I didn't realize that it was your job to just, you know, sign people up for big money contracts and not worry about if you got value out of them. My bad. No, but, but as I, as I said, Conrad, a while ago, I put Kevin in that role, just like I put Ric Flair in that role at one point, just like Dusty Rhodes was in that role at one point, just like Kevin Sullivan was in that role at one point. And I didn't go in behind them once I told them that that was their responsibility and second guess their shit. The reason that Kevin Nash was in the role that he was in is because I had to focus everything that I had on the business side of things. It's still ultimately my responsibility and I'll take that responsibility from, from the position of president of the company because the buck stopped with me. But when you're asking me about the decisions and the whys and the wherefores and the hows, they weren't my decisions. I, I, I didn't sit in a room with Kevin Nash before he laid the thing out to Brett and, and agreed to do something. I wasn't a part of that process. I was responsible for it and I'm not shirking that responsibility. But I want to make it clear that I wasn't the guy sitting there with a pencil writing this shit. I didn't put Bret Hart in the ring with Van Hammer. I would not have done that. I can assure you. No, you just, but, you just let it happen. March 19th and 20th, Sting beat Bret. That's a shot, bro. That's a shot. Yeah, I did let it happen. I, I did let that happen. But I didn't let that happen out of lack of care or lack of respect for Bret or lack of trying to save the company that I was trying to save. It happened. And yes, I let it happen because I was focused on other things. A few months later, that is an excuse. If you want a few months later, the company would be losing $5 million a month. I'm going to call that one. I don't know where those numbers come from and neither do you. WCW's numbers were never disclosed publicly. As a, as a matter of public record in an SEC filing or any of the other filings that normally are associated with a publicly held company. Like I stated, you know, an hour or so ago, WCW, if you looked at Turner's financials that were available to the public or if you were a shareholder, you, all you saw was a category down at the bottom of the list of operating uh, companies that said other. 
And we were lobbed in there with a couple other small, little, insignificant operations uh, within Turner Broadcasting. We need a shirt that says other. Or we got to make that happen. So you, yeah, we got to make that happen. But when you, when, when you throw numbers out there like that as fact, when you don't know that they're fact, and I can't respond to them. They may be, by the way. I'm not saying they weren't. But I'm, I'm, not, I'm not signing off on that or accepting that because those numbers were never published. And here's another little tidbit that's going to bore people that just want to hear dirt. And they want to hear me blow up because you push the right buttons. When I was running WCW, every year, we would sit down and do a budget. And that budget usually was finished sometime in the late summer. And that was the budget for the following year that started January 1st. Once that budget was approved, our job was to operate within that budget. Occasionally, occasionally, there were times when Turner Finance and the people that didn't work at WCW, these are the people that we work for at Turner Broadcasting, there were, and this was, it's called the gap principle, generally accepted principles within the county. There were a lot of intercompany allocations, meaning money shifted around from operating unit to operating unit. For a lot of different reasons, all of them legal, by the way, none of it illegal, not suggesting that. But from an accounting perspective, that was a very, very common occurrence. And towards the end of 98, and certainly in 1999, when the whole focus of Turner Broadcasting was all about the AOL, the pending AOL Time Warner merger, and we were mandated to have an 18% EBITDA. Every business unit, not just WCW, but every business unit. And if you were the head of that unit, like I was with WCW, or Brad Siegel was with TNT, or Bill Burke was with TBS, your stock options and your survival, by the way, in the midst of a merger, was based on your ability to bring your operating unit to an 18, and might have even been 21. I'm going to say 18, I think it might have been 21% EBITDA. And when, the, when Turner, AOL Time Warner knew that WCW was no longer in the long-term plan, we got a lot of other people's intercompany allocations expenses dumped upon us. So if that number was $5 million a month or the big number that people like throwing around out there, I guarantee you a lot of it had to do with a very legal and very generally accepted principle in accounting of dumping a lot of losses into an intercompany allocation expense, and it made WCW look a lot worse than it really was. You flew Brett to Nitro in Panama City on March twenty. Well, you're not you're not gonna you're not gonna ask me about that. You well, don't you don't find that interesting? No, I do. We're doing a Bret Hart episode. All right, it's fine, JJ. Um, no, you you know you can edit that out. No, I'm just busting balls, man. Come on. Uh, eventually he convinced Nash to let him do a promo, even though he was given the night off and he's doing this to try to build up Toronto and he slips in Goldberg at the end of the promo, just to sort of tease what's coming next week. And we're finally here. WCW's in Toronto, man, March 29th. And in a very memorable angle, Brett does a promo. Goldberg comes down, tries to spear him, but after he does, he's just laying on Brett, not moving. Brett rolls him off of him and then takes off the hockey jersey to reveal a steel plate underneath, and the crowd is nuts. Brett says, I walked into the Air Canada Center in Toronto for Nitro, and there were already thousands of fans standing on the street, the frigid cold, chanting my name. 
Eric had filled in the booking committee about my Goldberg angle, but much to my disappointment, Nash and road agent, Kevin Sullivan had got to bill and persuaded him that the angle would kill him off. I tried to talk Goldberg back into the dressing room saying, come on, bill. Are you kidding me? We talked about this. Remember you loved it. Nothing's changed. You know that this will set up to work after my surgery. When I left him, I ran into Nash who now decided he would come down at the end and leave me laying, which made no sense at all. I went and found Eric in his office and I knew that the rating success of WrestleMania 15 had to be weighing heavily on his mind. And I still couldn't believe my ears when he said, quote, how about this? You go out and tell the fans that you don't need them anymore. And my first refusal, I shook my head. No, Eric, do you hear that sound? That's the sound of thousands of my fans and only my fans standing on the sidewalk in the dead of winter, chanting my name. Why would I do that? So he had another idea. We'd do everything the same, except Hogan, not Nash would come down at the end. He'd go to high five me, but instead he'd double cross me, jump me and leave me for dead. Dumbfounded. I asked Eric if I was going to work with Hogan instead of Goldberg. And he said, not until next fall. I asked if Hogan was going to be wrestling Goldberg. And he said, not anytime soon. I asked him why in God's name, would you fuck up such a great angle with something so stupid and pointless? Eric said nervously, you'll have to convince Terry. If he says it's okay, then fine. That's that I'm calling bullshit right there. That is, that is, first of all, I can't even believe I, you know, Bret Hart may hate my guts. I'm cool with that. I've been hearing this now for a long time. And as much as I get hot at some of the things that I've heard him say, I can't believe Bret Hart would say that because that is so false. That is so much. I, I'm so tired of saying bullshit in relationship to Bret Hart. I, I don't want to hear myself say it anymore because this is beyond that. This is so delusional. I, I, it's, the only thing, it's the only way I can describe it. It's just freaking delusional. Absolutely delusional. He says, there's not even a kernel of truth in that. I sometimes, I try to give people the benefit of the doubt, but in this case, the way that was just read to me by you, that is just, God, that's just nuclear bullshit. Now I knew who was really in charge of WCW. So I went and found Hulk and asked him, so why would you come down? And he says, I don't need to come down. When I relayed Hulk's response to Eric, he seemed surprised and relieved. Eric wanted to, me to feed the rumors that I was going back to the WWF. So he told me after the bit with Goldberg, he wanted me to get on the mic and quit WCW. I had no idea what that would be about, but I agreed. I felt like a cat in the dark watching Hogan battling Nash and some sort of power play in which we were all caught in the middle. And Eric was in clearly over his head, unable to cope with the warring wolf packs. As I walked out to my music, there was a commotion going on in the entrance way. It was Kevin Sullivan on the floor, frothing at the mouth and a seizure. It was in the dressing room the next day where he explained that he had miscalculated his GHB dosage. Who could make <laughs> this stuff up? As I stepped <laughs> that, over that, him. That's, that part's true. <laughs> here's, my, here's the weirdest part of the book. As I stepped over him, I couldn't help but think it's a good thing I don't follow the leaders around here. I received a thundering ovation from the crowd. And then on the mic, I accused Goldberg of hiding in the dressing room, biting his fingernails and trembling with fear while I peeled off my Hitman Jersey to expose the Maple Leafs Jersey, declaring Canada hockey country. 
Eric was frantically running around backstage, screaming at Goldberg to get out there before I killed him off. When he finally got in the ring, snorting like a Brahma bull, I taunted him, begging him to come and get me. When he spear tackled me, the fans had no idea what was going to happen next. We both lay there for a few moments without moving for what seemed like an eternity. Then I rolled him off me, counted him out, stood up, peeled my Jersey off and threw it down on his unconscious body, revealing the steel plate. The whole building came unglued as Eric requested. I got on the mic and declared, Hey, WCW, I quit. Um, all of this is bullshit. You didn't try to change the finish. You didn't have to get Hulk's approval. All that's make believe. Correct. Yes, that is so. That is. It's just the most. I'm. I'm listening to you, and I'm thinking this guy's writing a fucking movie in his own mind. Here's what's interesting, and I think you're gonna love the way these two things almost touch. Brett said of it, "When I got home, I actually contemplated quitting for real. It seemed to me that Eric didn't have enough wrestling smarts to do his job. He had freaked out backstage because he thought I overshadowed Goldberg, but within hours, the angle was being talked about as the best thing WCW had done in years. In fact, it even made the front page of the Toronto sun under the headline Hitman quits. When I got home, I signed a two year extension to my contract. <laughs> I hoped it would dispel any fears that I was going back to the WWF, which might give WCW the incentive to do better by me. Not to mention that two and a half million dollars a year until 2003 was too good to turn down. Then I had my surgery. I find it interesting though, that he's saying I was thinking of quitting and sort of questioning your ability to do the job, but then immediately, oh, and then I resigned. He's um, writing a movie in, 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 in Bret Hart's mind, he's the hero in the own, in the, in his own movie that he's writing, directing and producing. And the script that he's writing is to do nothing more, has nothing to do with the facts, has nothing to do with, the, with, with his responsibility or anybody else's. It all has to do with this movie that he's constantly writing in his head that's going to one day position Bret Hart as the Canadian hero that he sees himself as every time he looks in the mirror. That's what this is. It's delusional. It's just freaking delusional. It's either, either Brett's delusional or the dipshit that wrote this book is, but somebody needs a dementia check. Uh, he writes in his book that with your blessing, he went to visit the WWF locker room for a house show at the saddle dome on April 17th. And all the boys greeted him warmly. And allegedly you love the idea because it played into the whole, you know, I quit. Did you remember having a conversation sort of giving him the heads up that that was cool to do? Absolutely have no recollection of it, but it does sound like something I would do. So I'd, I'll give him the benefit of the doubt. Here's what's fun. When you guys bring Brett back after he quit on TV without much of a real explanation, he just does a run in uh, like a heel run in to beat up Goldberg. And then with the use of a chair, Goldberg actually legit gets hurt. Of course, Brett has prided himself on being super careful, but he sent Goldberg to the hospital that night. Any memories of Goldberg getting injured here? I don't have, you know, I, I just don't. Okay. Brett wouldn't wrestle again until August, but I guess we should mention here that Brett was flying the tonight show. When he found out about Owen's accident, he says the cockpit door opened, the pilot comes out and he just knew that he was looking for him. He handed him a note and it says, Brett Hart, please call home family emergency. Uh, when he eventually gets a phone to work and he finally gets to speak to someone, he learns the news. And of course, Brett does some media after this accident. Of course, what do you remember? 
about that day and, and finding out about the Owen Hart tragedy? Uh, I remember that one pretty vividly. Um, I was, I had already, I was in LA. Um, it was a Sunday night, obviously. And I was staying at the Radisson over at Universal Studios, um, in Burbank. And obviously because I was in a hotel, I couldn't get to pay-per-view. Uh, and that was before, you know, streaming and that type of thing. So I, I didn't, you know, I wasn't watching the pay-per-view, obviously. I wasn't paying too close attention to anything. And I got a phone call. And I don't remember who it was that called me. It might have been Janie Engel, my assistant. Um, I'm pretty sure it was. Got a phone call. And that's when I heard. And I'm, by the way, I was there waiting for Brett because we were going to do the appearance on The Tonight Show with Jay Leno the next day. So that's why I was there. And I was going to pick Brett up at the airport anyway. Um, so I was sitting in the room when the phone call came and I thought, oh, my God, I've got to get to the airport because I knew Brett was in the air. Um, I was aware of his schedule. Like I said, I was going to pick him up anyway, not just because of this. Right? Obviously, I didn't know it was going to happen. Uh, so I rushed to the airport to make sure that I could get to him, uh, immediately so that I could tell him before somebody else did. And I waited, I got there way early and I waited and I waited and waited. And, uh, finally with the plane pulled up and I kind of dreaded it. And by the way, despite everything that, you know, you've, you've told me that Brett has said about me and all the supposed heat that we had back and forth and all the drama, Brett and I were still very close at this point. And which is why. I was so concerned that I got to him uh, as quickly as I did. It's why I took the time to get to L.A. early so I could meet him at the airport. Um, not because I knew, obviously, what was going to happen, but because it, we had that relationship. Um, so, obviously, you know, when he walked off the plane, I could tell that he knew. I was surprised. That was well before, you know, wireless on, on, on planes. And I was sh pleasantly surprised, but surprised that they were able to get word to Brett, but he knew, and I could tell he knew the minute he stepped foot off the plane, he was one of the first people off the plane. And, uh, we had, a, we hugged, um, we talked, can't remember exactly what about it was mostly him reacting to what had happened. And, and I remember he was angry, you know, he was hot. He said some things. I'm not going to repeat them. He said some things, um, that probably any of us might say in a similar situation, you want to blame everybody. And this isn't a knock on Brett. I would have done the same thing. Anybody would, uh, you're angry, you're hurt, you're confused. Uh, and that, and, and Brett was all of those things as we were walking through the terminal, uh, heading out to the car to take us to the hotel. <sighs> Not good stuff here. Um, Brett says you asked him to fly to Chicago on June 25th to talk about where he was at, but he says it was really impossible for him to even think about getting back in the ring. But he does say that you were super kind to him, telling him to take all the time he needed. And he says Hulk was at this meeting and he said he was excited to work with him in the fall. And, uh, you said you wanted to put the belt on him and Brett told you about Vince, maybe sort of playing the family by offering jobs to Neidhart and bulldog. And you offered to hire Jim back. And you guys decide that he'll come back on the July 5th edition of nitro and have some promo time to say anything he wants. And on that nitro video montage of Brett's career airs for the crowd. He comes out to a huge response 
He's visibly upset, crying and even shaking for this promo where he's really just thanking the fans and the crowd politely gives him a standing ovation when he left. It's a pretty real moment on nitro here. What do you remember about the meeting or the promo? Don't remember much about the, the, the meeting. Um, but I do remember the situation and I remember the evening. I remember the promo. I remember the tone. I remember the way everybody felt. I remember the reaction and it was real. And it, it, it was one of those moments in a business that is not real. And even when it tries to be is sometimes ridiculous. Um, this was one of those moments when everybody knew it was real and the audience connected and, and they had a lot of compassion for Brett and, and Brett was feeling it. And it was, I don't want to say it was a magic moment because it was a horrible moment. The reason for it was horrible, but the moment was real and it was, it was a beautiful thing under the circumstances. Meltzer says the proposed program with Hogan would happen at Halloween Havoc and the original idea was a three-way with Goldberg, but at this point it was likely just Hart and Hogan. Of course, this didn't happen, but was that the plan at the time? Hogan, Hart, Halloween Havoc? 99? Yep. Yes. Brett would make his return on August 20th in a series of house show matches against Hulk Hogan. They worked together on the 20th, 21st, 22nd. And then even on September 3rd and 4th, all the matches go to a no contest. And Brett was led to believe that they're essentially trying to set up a hero versus hero style match between a baby face, red and yellow Hulk Hogan. And of course, Brett Hart, but those plans change at the Miami nitro. When you bring him into your office and tell him that he's going to be a part of a heel run in. And allegedly Brett says something like after all these months, I've come here to do what? Given all that had happened with me doing a run in on someone else's match, that would have been an incredible waste and really dumb booking. So allegedly you change your mind right before it goes live and you have him doing a promo where he says he's coming back, but he doesn't really know when, why were you sort of playing hokey pokey with, should we turn him or should we not here? Do you think we weren't, I wasn't make believe again, make believe. Uh, Brett says when he gets to the back, you told him that he came off too heelish in the promo. And of course, Brett doesn't like that. The later in this same show, we see sting and Luger go into Hogan's dressing room where he's sitting with Brett Hart. The lights go out and sting is knocked out. Hogan and Luger blame the other guy for attacking sting, but Hart blames Luger and Meltzer says that, uh, the show opened with Brett Hart coming out and basically giving the same interview he'd been doing at house shows saying his mind wasn't made up. Um, but he wants a match with Hogan. Fans pop for this initially, but when he calls Hogan, arguably the greatest of all time, some fans boo and WCW's lack of consistent thinking. This is directly from the observer is amazing because a planned angle gets on the internet. WCW would drop the angle cold, but they'll still do things like the Sid win streak or act like the heart that heart has never wrestled Hogan, even though the same audience is well aware of the situation. Uh, this is, uh, sort of where we come to the end of your story in WCW, at least for a while, because you wind up leaving the company on September 10th, 1999. We'll cover all of that and what happened some other time. Let's fast forward. Um, you know, I don't know that we can really comment since you weren't really there. Did you see the injury that happened at Starcade 99 with Goldberg and Bret Hart? And I'm sure you heard about it. Uh, What's your take on that whole injury situation at Starcade 99? 
I didn't see it live. I saw it right after it happened. Um, at during that period of time, I was trying not to watch any wrestling, but obviously because it was Bill um, and, and and Brett and the injury and everybody was talking about it, I saw it. Um, my first thought was, you know, it it was kind of representative of a challenge that we had with with Bill, in that, you know, Bill's. Bill had very little experience. He was pushed to the moon in a very, very short period of time. And as amazing of an athlete as Bill was, his repertoire um, was somewhat limited. And it, it got better as time went on. But, you know, you're talking about September 99, August or September 99. When did when did Bill first show up in a power plant? Sometime in 98? Uh, yeah, it would have been 97. He debuted in September 97. Okay, so he he basically had about 18 or 24 months of experience out of the power plant into television, and most of the experience that he had was very short squash matches. This wasn't a guy that was able to go out there and have a 20 or 30 or 45-minute match. Um, he, 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 his, his repertoire was so limited, and that put pressure on Bill. My, my opinion, Bill and I never talked about that, but knowing Bill the way I know him, as competitive as he is and was, especially at that time, um, as emotional as he was about being you know, competitive, he pushed himself sometimes too far. Ergo, putting his fist through a window of a limo, limo and severing an artery and all the other things that we know about Bill and his passion and intensity. And when you put a guy like Bill into a situation and try to have a match that requires a little bit more experience and timing uh, and control, bad things happen. And in that case, bad things happen. And I, I felt horrible about it for both of them. Brett for being hurt. Um, and Bill, because I know how Bill felt about being the guy that hurt Bret Hart. It felt horrible for both of them. The, uh, decision is made for you to come back. I believe in April of 2000, um, Brett doesn't do a ton here. He does get to uh, fly to a nitro in Denver on April 10th. He was asked and he did charge into the ring bash Hogan with a chair and in an act of pathetic desperation, according to uh, Bret Hart, Hogan juiced big time. Those are his words on thunder on May 2nd, Bret makes an appearance on thunder and Jarrett smashes a guitar over his back. Uh, and really, we don't really see much more when, when you're there. I think the next time we see something from him, he's on nitro on August 28th, but by then you're already gone. You were only in for a handful of months in 2000. But I guess it's worth mentioning that while his wrestling career was over, he's being asked to do some promotional work for WCW in order to receive half and then a quarter of his salary. And according to his contract, they could fire him anytime after six weeks, if he couldn't wrestle. So he was doing appearances and they kept paying him, but obviously the longer he was out of the ring, the less and less they paid. And then on October 19th, 2000, he gets a call from JJ Dillon with the bad news. He says that JJ's voice cracked and he knew it hurt him to tell him, uh, but he knew what was coming. And, uh, based on your wrestling incapacity, WCW is exercising its right to terminate your independent contractor agreement effective October 20th, 2000. Your contributions to the wrestling business are highly regarded and we wish you only the best in the future. It's a weird, weird story, you know, all about Bret Hart and WCW. 
Um, I don't know how we would really categorize his run there. Uh, you know, I guess that's left for everybody else to sort of decide, you know, overall, I think it's fair to say that it was a failure on all fronts. You know, Brett was disappointed. I think WCW was disappointed. Is that fair to say, Eric? Uh, yeah, very fair. You know, if you had to go back and sort of pinpoint, do you think there was one maybe pivotal? I mean, a lot of times you can look back and you can say, okay, this is where we fucked up. It's not that easy with Brent Hart to me. It's really hard to go back and say it was this moment. Do you have a moment like that that sort of jumps out to you? I think it all goes back to the very beginning. I, I think it's fair for Bret Hart or fans of Bret Hart to suggest that there really wasn't a great plan, a long-term plan with Bret. That is fair. Um, Bret came in rather abruptly. We didn't have a long time to to really lay out in a thoughtful way where we could we could balance different options and really really creatively do the best job we could do uh, and even with the time that we did have we didn't do a great job i didn't do a great job so i think if you go right back to the very beginning with all of the the things that were going on with the pressure of thunder and the choices i was trying to make and the pressure we were getting from the, from wwe and the pressure we were getting from our own company and the corporate infighting that was taking place and the fact that they were gutting our budgets and doing a lot of other things all of those things all of those little things and variables threw us off of our game and a lot of that had to do with the reason why we didn't have a good plan. We just didn't. And that's fair for Brett and fans of Brett. Um, but I will also say Brett didn't contribute. Brett didn't try despite, you know, the, the hero's journey in that amazingly Steven Spielberg ish moment that Brett Hart single-handedly against all odds created in Toronto so that the, his fans, the multitude of fans who stood outside in the freezing cold as Bret Hart had to walk over the near comatose body of the head booker only to prevail the ring and prove to the bookers and everybody else that Bret Hart had the keys to the wrestling kingdom that night. Despite all of that, Bret Hart didn't really contribute as much as Bret Hart could have contributed to Bret Hart's own success and Bret Hart's own legacy. Right now, Bret Hart's legacy is a bitter, broken guy who wants to blame everybody from Vince McMahon to Eric Bischoff to Ric Flair to Shawn Michaels to Dean Malenko, for God's sake, for all of the things that went wrong in his career. And that's, un that's you know, regardless of how many things I did wrong, that's on that's Bret. Is Bret Hart a Canadian hero? Is Justin Bieber? If being a, if being a Canadian hero, if the threshold of being a Canadian hero is simply being a celebrity, then sure he is. So is so is Justin Bieber. So is William Shatner. You know. So is Celine Dion. So is Shania. Tw Wait, Shania Twain is a Canadian hero. I saw her at a rodeo on a white horse once. I would vote for Shania Twain as a Canadian hero. Let's talk about let's talk about Bret Hart. He made the news last year. Uh, this went everywhere on October 11th, uh, or maybe the 10th, 2017. 
quote, I don't have a good thing to say about Eric Bischoff or anything he ever did. Talk about the Midas touch. He was the opposite. He would kill your career. He was too stupid to know what a career was. It's like, if you had passion for your matches and a genius for wrestling talent, it didn't mean anything to Eric Bischoff. He was the worst loser maggot. He was a nice enough guy, but he was just the worst. I felt so bad because I went to WCW because I really wanted to make a difference. If you look at WCW and all the names that they had, all the wrestlers, they had everything. All they needed was to have someone who knew what they were doing. Someone with half a brain. I heard this quote, which is why I get hostile towards Eric Bischoff talking about how, when I came to WCW, I was like a broken toy or that I didn't have the fire. I could strangle him when I hear him say that because it's so not true. I was on fire. I wanted to take on the world. I wanted to take on that whole company and kick Vince McMahon in the teeth. I wanted to put on the best matches. Give me Chris Benoit. Give me Booker T. Give me Sting, Hogan, and we can really get this thing rocking here. But he was such an idiot. I would tell him if he was sitting that right next to me, you're an idiot and you cost everybody. You look at wrestling today, it's like a monopoly. So the wrestlers themselves have no leverage of any kind. Before, if they weren't going to be paid, you could have told them that they were going to WCW like the old days. And that was so much better for the wrestlers because we had a bargaining table. But today, no. And that is all Eric Bischoff's fault. He killed the wrestling business. He was the worst. I like Eric. He was always nice to me. He had done some nice things for me. Like the night Owen died, he flew me home in a Learjet, paid me the whole summer with a ridiculous wage. So he did do some nice things for me, but at the same time, he lied to me and killed my career. It's kind of like come to WCW and sign this contract so we could kill your career because that's what we're going to do. Yeah, I'm sure the next time you go to a WrestleCon or maybe even the all-in event, and I'm sure when you see Scott Hall and Kevin Nash signing autographs, I'm sure Scott Hall's wearing a Razor Ramon gimmick, and I'm absolutely sure Kevin Nash, he'll be dressed up as Diesel, right? Wrong. They're there and they're, they're, they're still more over today because of what I did. I made them bigger stars in WCW than they ever were in WWE. And if you don't believe me, just go check it out next time you see them at an autograph signing because they're still wearing the NWO shit, which, by the way, are shirts that are still selling to this day. And oh, by the way, Booker T. The guy from WCW that's still associated with WWE and Bill Goldberg, who was just inducted into the WWE Hall of Fame. All of those guys who suffered at Eric Bischoff's hands, whose careers just died in the wasteland of Eric Bischoff's lack of understanding of the wrestling business as Brett freaking Hart knows it. Those people are all still making money. So I kind of say to Brett, just look around you, Brett. Pull yourself out of the mushroom that you live under. Look for a little bit of daylight. Look around you and realize that you're kind of full of shit. And you really don't know what you're talking about because you weren't inside of Turner Broadcasting. You weren't inside of the machine that was going on at that time. You weren't there when Ted Turner was having the rug pulled out from underneath him. And he didn't even know it until he was asked to leave his own office. Bret Hart, you don't really understand the business of the wrestling business. You only understand the Bret Hart wrestling business. And they're two different things. That was nicer than I expected. You were much rougher on Kevin Sullivan and Jim Cornette last week. 
Well, I told you when I first started this, I do have respect for Brett. And I try really hard to control myself. But it's tough. But I try. I really, really try. John brings his skewed sense of humor. Jeff brings tips to cut strokes off your next round. Together, it's those weekend golf guys. They'll pay a lot of money to PXG and Titleist and Callaway and on and on and on. Right? How many yards do you think you're going to pick up with that extra driver? I think I can get an extra 5 to 10. What if I give you 15 to 20? <laughs> you pay me more. Jeff Smith right? teaches on the sliding scale. <laughs> those weekend golf guys, the podcast, part of the Believe Network. Just search B-L-E-A-V on YouTube or wherever you listen.